podcast this week, we have more double acts and you could shake the two Ronnies at as we talk to the Woman King stars, Lashana Lynch and Sheila Atim, Amsterdam star slash director combo Christian Bale and David O. Russell, and the Lost Kings writers and, in one case, star Steve Coogan and Jeff Pope. All that and more on the movie podcast that ordered four candles off the internet and all it got was four handles for four forks. It was, it was, it was, it was better when the two Ronnies did it. It was a lot it. better when the two Ronnies did it. Yeah. Uh, ask your parents who the two Ronnies were. Or ask your parents' parents who the two Ronnies were. <laughs> it's, go to YouTube. Great stuff. Great stuff. Hello, Paul. I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to the Empire Podcast. Uh, this week, it's a bumper show. We have technically six guests, three, three sets of guests, two guests in each set. That's... 12 guests. Oh my God. 12 guests. <laughs> how many thumbs is that? I don't even know how many thumbs that is. Anyway, uh, we've got a lot of guests. I've got COVID, which is why we are doing this in glorious remote isolation. Uh, I am joined by my two colleagues of such lethal cunning. Helen O'Hara, Geek Queen. Hello. James Dyer, Great Big Fucking Nerb. Hello. Hello. And because of all those reasons that I've just stated... We're going to get on with it this week. Um, I'm you know, perfunctory. How are you? Yeah, sure. Fine. Don't have COVID, <laughs> so there's, there's a win. Yes. Yes. Jimbo, do you have COVID? I do not, to the best of my knowledge, have COVID, which is, you know, good. Right. I'm just really super glad I didn't hug you during the marathon. So that's, that's, a, I'm very pleased. Yes, that's that. right. Congratulations on that, by the Thank way. You. I know uh, perfunctory how do you do's and so on and so forth, but we have to ask you about the London marathon. Uh, so you ran past us, myself, my wife, and our daughter, little drinking game. You ran past us at a speed, I'll be honest with you, was a lot quicker than you had advertised. <laughs> I did finish before the roads reopened. Yay. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which is all I was really going for. No, it was, look, I was by any means measure a slow marathoner but given that I hadn't done any long runs in training I was super super pleased and uh, and it's yes. just a brilliant day if you haven't been to the London Marathon or run the London Marathon it's just one of the great ones in the world because the entire city comes out and like lines the streets and is happy and cheery and playing all kinds of music every single kind of music is somewhere on the course and uh, and there, every single kind of music every single really? kind of music I swear to god there were about like Death metal. seven different kinds of yes there was metal there was everything there were like seven different kinds just of drum bands, never mind any other like musicians. Um, and people were giving out sweeties and it was still okay to take <gasps> them. That's how good sweeties. it was. Sweeties. All, for 26 miles of sweeties. It's amazing. From strangers, Helen, did your parents teach you nothing? I'm in. I'm in. <laughs> I'm signing up. I'm signing up. If, if, I could, if, I, if I'd known there were sweeties, honestly, I would have done the full offense font thing and joined for you. for next year is still open, Chris. You could do it today. I know it's open until tomorrow. I am tempted to put my name it, into it, but then it. what if I get selected? What if I get selected? Then I'd have to run That's it. That's what happened to me. I wasn't, I, f I thought it was safe. I'd put in my name in the ballot. Everything would be fine. Then it wasn't. All right, let's do it together. Let's, let's, right. uh, Jimbo, Jimbo, you in? Absolutely not. Go on, do it. We could do a podcast. 26, I know Rob Deering does running podcasts already, but you know, we can usurp him. A running Empire Film podcast. Could it be a kind yeah. of shuffling, crawling Empire Film podcast? It would almost possibly... certainly be a shuffling, crawling Empire yeah, Film podcast. Yeah, I feel like I could maybe cope with that. Or maybe we a... can make it more palatable by by binging the MCU. We can we can do something like that. I mean, we, we can probably watch... would get through all of them while running. So I know I would. <laughs> uh, so that's, by by the point by the point of next year's 
London Marathon, there'd be 33 films mm. in the MCU, which would probably equate to, what, four or five days of viewing time, not counting all the different shows. I would probably need that because I would probably <laughs> finish it in four or five days. Whereas I finished in a mere Avengers Infinity War and Endgame. So, you know. <laughs> Impressive. I think you finished it in less time than it takes to watch Infinity War and Endgame. Mm. So that's that's pretty damn good. If so, it's very close, but yeah. It was, was very, happy. very close indeed. But yes, there's the, the the London Marathon app has this great thing where you can input. Uh, it's it's terrifying, but it's also great where you can actually input people's runner numbers. And so I knew Helen's runner number, or I just guessed it, one of the two. And it was able to literally tell you where Helen was along the map. And so great we were able for to snipers. like, she's, yeah, super good. Yeah. yeah. She's like, she's in the room. You're not reading it right. <laughs> like she was, she was at one point. She was in the ceiling above us. I was in the fence. Us. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she was in the fence, uh, and so we just we we walked along, you know, to where she was running past, and it was like just checking it, checking it, checking it. Here she comes. Here she comes. Here she comes. Can't see her. Can't see her. And then all of a sudden, like the flash, <laughs> she just suddenly streaked past. It was it was incredible. I don't know, guys. It's felt to me like we've talked about Helen running the marathon for so long that it has somehow become an entirely new day. <laughs> Wait, it, Anyone get that feeling? It is weird. I, I do feel like it's a new day, actually. How strange that you said that. It almost feels like it's Friday morning and we've reconvened because we had mm -hmm. tech problems yesterday. Specifically, I had tech problems yesterday. <laughs> Yes. Yes. There you go. There you. There's the culprit. There's yeah. the man who's yeah. the reason why we're doing this at eight forty-four on Friday morning. Uh, but that's actually benefited you nicely. The little break, that little unexpected, unplanned break overnight, because the question this week pertains uh, to the latest episode of She-Hulk: Attorney at Law, and I'm going to tiptoe around this uh, for fear of giving away spoilers. But there's a there's a gag in there involving a very popular MCU character that f when I watched the episode yesterday made me laugh a lot and I thought oh that's one of the best visual gags in the MCU and then I saw a whole bunch of people tw on Twitter going nuts about this this gag and some people were asking is this gag the funniest visual gag in the MCU and then so I wanted to broaden that out to ask what's the funniest visual gag in the history of superhero movies but I can't just take over the listener questions section this isn't a dictatorship this is a democracy so we have a question that comes from Chris Hewitt LFC no only kidding uh, I got people to send in questions to, uh, to send that question into us so who's the first one who did that uh, who is the first person I see who did that Probably nobody, but I should pretend that it happened. So there's the question. What for you is the funniest visual gag in the history of superhero movies? So the first one that came to my mind is first X-Men movie, Wolverine giving Cyclops the finger with his claws. Remember after it goes through the metal detector and it obviously goes off yes. because he's Wolverine? yes. It's genius. It's genius. But the thing is, it's it's then sh overshadowed quite swiftly by a non-visual gag when he's like, previous year, he's like, you're a dick. And he's like, okay. Yeah, that's later like on, that's, but yeah, it's also yeah. one of my favourites. Yeah. Very, very good. Uh, as a good start, that is a very, very strong start. Uh, Jimbo, do you have any advances on Wolverine giving Cyclops the finger? <sighs> well, I mean, the thing that sort of I always stands out to me is the puny god sequence in 
first Avengers, just like the picking him up and just bashing him around like a rag doll. I think that's a glorious moment. That said, the the line is kind of what gives it its impact, and obviously that makes it not an entirely visual gag. So it's slightly cheating, but I like to think that's in character for me. So how about just Hulk punching Thor? Yes, Hulk punching Thor is particularly good as well. I love that because they've been working together, and suddenly like smack. That's a great gag. I like that a lot. I like, yeah, I do like Hulk smashing seven shades of, of green out of Loki. I don't think you need the puny god to pay that off. Mm. Well, it's also Loki's face after when he's lying kind of in the broken floor, just going, huh? And the noise, <laughs> the noise he makes. Only, only dogs can hear him at that point. <laughs> that little noise. That's a fun one. Uh, for me, it's another Hulk moment from the MCU. They're, they're, I'm gonna, we're going to broaden it out to outside the MCU in a second. Uh, like, is an octopus playing the drums a visual gag? I don't mm. know, but it might be the greatest moment in superhero it's history. Uh, in which case, in which case, our good pal Aquaman has got this sewn up. But uh, oh yeah, it's it for me. I think the thing that made me laugh most, and it, it hits in a different way, literally hits in a different way to the gag in She Hulk, uh, which is a very gentle visual gag, but a very very mm-hmm. funny one in terms of character and in terms of context. But it's in Thor Ragnarok, and it's the moment when Banner slams into the the Bifrost at great speed and basically kills himself. That's great. Mm. That is great. Yeah, <laughs> it's just, when I that saw that for the funny. first time, that I cracked up so much. That's a belter. The other one from sort of superhero history that keeps coming to mind is one I can't even remember which film it was, and it's isn't it Lex Luthor's girlfriend in was it Superman two where basically it cuts to her in an unguarded moment and she's she's reading like it's not War and Peace, it's higher brow than that. She's reading a really. She's reading Crime and Punishment, she isn't she? I'm pretty sure she's reading Crime and, and Punishment. punishment? Yeah. yeah. And it's just, and then, you know, she hears someone coming and basically hides it behind a magazine. And I, ju- I loved that as a kid. I, it just made me laugh so much. I just thought it was the cleverest thing. Yeah, Miss Tessmarker. That's the first one. So was the, it was Miss Tessmarker. Yeah, okay, it's Miss Tessmarker. It's, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Valerie Perrine. Uh, and, I think uh, it was somebody blonde for some reason. That's why I wasn't sure it was she, her. She, I would say she's blonde. Was she blonde? I would, I would say she's oh, blonde. Okay. She's not. She's not super blonde. She's not platinum she's not blonde. Not like platinum. But she's, okay. Yeah, okay. but I, she's blonde. But I'm glad you mentioned Superman because that brings me to the virtuoso opening of Superman three, which is, if you remember, just an extended bit of slapstick. Uh, this uh-huh. just bravura set piece in which anything that can go wrong does go wrong. You know, you have all these different things. You have Pamela Stevenson going through this this kind of metropolis scene, and then someone gets distracted by her because you know she's an attractive lady, and then it all you know. And he he kickstarts his Rube Goldberg series of accidents that end up with this this car crashing and getting caught under a water pipe and filling up with water and you know there's just this this all this chaos going on and Bob Todd from the Benny Hill show is in there and you have Superman changing in a photo booth and then he you know he the photo the photo comes out at the photo booth and you know reveals he's Clark Kent so he mm. he takes he takes the bits of reveal he's Clark Kent and gives the bone of Superman to the little kid and that's a really really fun scene directed by Richard Lester which kind of hints at the tone of that movie which i which i still love also richard maybe i just maybe my love of superman 3 stems entirely from the fact that i saw it when i was like seven years old but there's also richard Pryor skiing off the building and then landing on the ground completely unscathed there's a lot of great visual gags in in that film because richard lester just decided to kind of go for it uh, more as a bit of a comedy than 
than as a full-blown superhero movie. So that's a good one. I'm quite fond of the gag in X-Men Days of Future Past. Remember when Mystique goes undercover uh, as a, an army colonel? And she walks in, everyone's like, Colonel, Colonel. And then you notice her name tag just says Sanders. I was like, yes. I'm always here for a KFC gag. Always. I'm always here for a KFC. Is it too early? I don't yes. know if she has a KFC in it. You can see in her eyes that she wants one, but, but I don't know if she actually gets one. Wow. <laughs> if I were a mistake, I would just eat KFC all day long and not have to worry about it impacting my figure because I could just simply transform into, well, mystique. So it'd be totally fine. That's how it works, right? With mistake. I, I, that's a very interesting philosophical question that I don't think the X-Men comics or cartoon or films have ever answered, really. What is Mystique's metabolism? Where does the extra mass come from if she plays mm -hmm. a bigger person? Well, listen, uh, I believe we actually have Jennifer Lawrence coming on this podcast in the next couple of weeks. So I'll ask Ooh, her. Brilliant. Yeah, that shouldn't be a weird conversation to have at all. Yeah. Straight out of the gate. Jennifer, I know you've made a really serious film, but I have a question to ask you. <laughs> does Mystique put on weight if she eats lots of food? Or can she just like body transform it away? She could just she could just absolutely have you know have her cake literally have her cake and eat it. Anything else in terms of visual gags with superheroes or uh, you know I thought this would be a rich seam of conversation. <laughs> I don't think I think we've got five. I think we've got five it's, it's, I'm trying to just, you know probe the dusty recesses of my brain for memories. But I remember the, the when the Thomas Tank Engine uh, bears down on Yellow Jacket. That's pretty funny. In, that's in a good one. That's a nice visual gag. Uh, I thought that was pretty good. That's a, good. a lot of good visual gags in Ant-Man, actually. Yeah, there's the, um, yeah, there's the, the bit where the bad guy, Yellow Jacket again, who gets a lot of punishment and that gets swatted with a uh, ping pong bat into one of those insect buzzy mm. repellent things. And you just hear a little, is that a visual gag? I don't know. I yeah, think it is. So. That's funny. That's Although funny. the noise sells it. The noise yeah. sells it. Well, it's like Invisible Drax. That's really funny. But obviously, it gets funnier when he starts talking. So when you just see him standing there eating, like that's funny. But then it gets funnier. Yeah. So it's not really a visual gag. David Smith, who is a listener to the podcast, uh, suggested the scene in Guardians, the first Guardians, Helen's beloved Guardians, where uh, Rocket is explaining to them that they're in the prison. And Rocket is explaining oh, yes. to his fellow guardians that, you know, you cannot go over and, you know, we've got to do this plan, this elaborate plan. And then the last thing we got to do, the last thing we have to do is go over there and push that, you know, push, push that button or pull that thing He's out. Pull the thing off the side of the, the thing off central the thing. tower, isn't it? Yeah. And meanwhile, Groot is just like, oh, and he just goes off and behind him and just rips it out and, and, and unleashes chaos. It's like the beginning of off. Superman 3. Yeah, whole mm. thing kicks off. That's so, very funny. I like that. That's yeah. a belter. That uh, is an absolute belt. Speaking of Rocket, when he goes through warp speed in Guardians 2, and uh, they're yes. going through all the different, they're doing all the jumps, and Groot and Rocket are getting all distorted and hmm. warped. Yeah. That's funny. Anything in the DCEU? Those, minute, those movies are a laugh a minute. Yeah. That that one minute is between... Yeah. <laughs> Aquaman has the lion's share of the gags in those. I'm looking, thinking of Man of Steel. There's bound to be a gag in there. I mean, I guess... Does it there's, count? There's sorry, a, there's, there's bound to be when, a gag in Man of Steel. Yeah, Where? I mean, it, I mean, okay, so it's a, it's a loose, a loose interpretation of cake. The bit where you know he just pulls the handcuffs apart, you know, where it's just like he could have done it all along. He's had his hands in handcuffs all the whole time, and then he's just like, "I'm bored this now," and he just snaps them. Oh, that's quite a nice, gently amusing moment, if not an out and out gag. True, yeah. Uh, who does it better, Superman or Reacher? Reacher. 
Always Reacher. <laughs> Who would win in a fight, Superman or Reacher? Reacher. Wow. It's true. Wow. It's like, this is like the Batman would take down Superman thing. Reacher, <laughs> oh Reacher would figure yeah. out Superman's weaknesses. He would he would analyse exactly. his fighting pattern within He'd seconds. he something in boots that would defeat Superman. <laughs> and it is a, a, a little known fact that uh, Reacher's chest muscles are so dense they can stop heat vision. So that's that's, that's pretty Good true. Good Lord. Yes. There's no yeah. way that Superman would burn Reacher to a crisp within three seconds of that fight <laughs> starting. So, yes. Sliding kryptonite elbow. And then Reacher would, would break out his catchphrase, Reacher is the strongest one there is. Wow. Puny Superman thinks he can hurt Reacher, but <laughs> Superman does not know Reacher is the strongest one there is. That's You're what he would offending, say. just offending so many fandoms <laughs> right now. It's it's impressive, really. Helen, listen, Reacher is the best there is at what he does. Uh, what he does is oh, no. go to boots. Now you've, come to, <laughs> now you've come from my people, too. Oh, what no. he does is have three different types of shower. He That's does. true. Three different types, yeah. yeah. Superman couldn't shower in three minutes or whatever it is. No, I he, mean, he, he could. very Superman much could. could. <laughs> Superman could. could fly to a waterfall and shower, heat up the water and shower in three minutes and be that back. Cool. Like, he could. That's kind of the whole super speed thing. Superman can breathe onto a lake and then pick up that, that lake, freeze the lake, pick it up and then drop it onto a, a burning factory. I have questions about that. You can't freeze <laughs> stuff by blowing on it. That's just fucking ridiculous. Yes, you can. Of course you can. Well, you can, but Superman can, yeah. obviously. Like Superman, I, I, like, during, I mean, look, I don't read the Superman comics, but in those films, they play it very fucking fast and loose with what power Superman has. What, what do you what, mean? What are you talking it's about? It's all entirely reasonable. It's like, that- oh, hang on a second. Let me just reach into my chest and pull out a plastic net from the logo and chuck it on someone. You're like, what? what you're Who's not wearing your one right now? <laughs> We don't know what his dad and then mum, because Marlon Brando refused to come back for Superman 2 <laughs> after Richard Donner was fired. Uh, we, we don't know what his mum and his dad taught him. We, we don't get to see that. You know, all those crystals contained in the Fortress of Solitude. Mm-hmm. There might be one in which they go, Kal-El, you have, by the way, you think this is a funky logo? It's actually a plastic net with which to catch your, your nemeses. Yeah. Yeah. You don't even know. You don't know, man. It's all there. You don't you know. You there. Yeah. <laughs> Kal-El, you may think it's stupid that you can just turn back time by flying around the planet <laughs> loads and loads, thus reversing the Earth's um, orbit, which would actually hey. destroy the Earth. And it no, works it's totally fine. In Star Trek Four, it's fine for Superman. Oh, it okay. Didn't, that's not what they did in Star Trek no, Four. No, not quite what they did, but it's broadly speaking what they did. They slingshot around the sun, don't they? They slingshot around. The, that's a very different thing. That's like trying to go to eighty-eight miles an hour in a DeLorean. Like it's yeah. slingshotting around the sun is just to get up to the requisite speed to then get the time machine doodah working. Like it's uh-huh. a totally different. Star Trek it's is exactly different. Hard yeah. science by comparison with Superman yep. the movie. I have so many questions about that. I mean, I love that film so much, Superman the movie. Uh, not Star Trek Four, the the Voyage Home. I thought it was a good movie, a, it's a, a good fine movie. movie. Than Superman, in fact, but yes. What? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. What? As indeed did you Star just Trek's say? Two, six, seven, eight, nine. Possibly I've ten. I discovered my kryptonite and has changed his opinions on what? Superman. What? You're right. Nemesis was too far. Seven, eight, nine. Possibly ten. <laughs> not probably not. 10, what did you yeah. just say? I've got lots. I got lots of for for interaction. So. Wow, I have no love for Superman. It has to be said. It's not. It's not that, a film I have. That's become quite clear since, since you, you've been saying, "Oh yeah, that stuff where he his powers take me out the movie." It's like he's Superman. He's got powers, but the bit where he flies around the world, like I've I've got questions about that. And he turns back time. <laughs> how does so. he? How does he know? 
when he's done enough. Mm-hmm. Huh? Well, he's and a then, level five intelligence or whatever, right? So he's probably like just keeping an eye out down below on Lois's car, I guess, and seeing when it reverses out of the chasm. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and isn't it just a bit selfish he does it just for her? Yes. yes. And does it make any sense that Somehow he's turned back time, but he has also diverted the second nuclear warhead. So he doesn't have to redo that. He can still he can then just turn his attention to the the other one. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Like he 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 keeps all the good stuff he did first time around, but then gets to fix all the stuff he didn't do when he was doing that, but without undoing what he did. I just look. I mean, I like Superman the movie a lot. I think Christopher Reeve is one of the all time greats. But that ending doesn't make a lick of sense, and it never will, and it never has, and we should just not worry about it. Real quick, there's got to be some great stuff in Tim Burton's Batman movies, right? Some great visual gags, if we can remember the question that was I asked. Mean, <laughs> graffitiing, the, graffitiing the Mona Lisa was pretty funny to me. Bad, but funny. You know, oh, some well. of his graffiti in the art museum. Yeah, why is what, how was the Mona Lisa there? Look, it's on loan. Don't worry about it. Maybe <laughs> I don't it was, think they'd loan it out. There is actually a, a second. There is a copy of it. Do you remember <gasps> it was sold at auction a few it came up? At, no, it's a, not fake. It's like a, just another painting, isn't it? You know. Well, he did the same one twice. So good, he made well, it. Well, it may have been him, or it may have been one of his students with a bit of assistance. It's not clear. I that haven't. Sounds done. Like I don't remember plagiarism. the reading. Yeah, well, it was. It, that's not a concept that it really existed in Renaissance art. They used to all paint the same things over and over and until they got it right. Like it's just, oh, I don't have for an art history lesson, and also I don't have the knowledge for it. Leave me alone. Oh no, she's she's uh, she's uh, struggling here. Um, listen, okay, just a couple of last things. Uh, Raimi Spider Man's got to be some good gags in those, right? They definitely do. Not. Yeah. Good. Excellent. Hey. Um, Blade. I was not- trying to think through Blade. I know there's got to be a vi- good visual gag. In Blade, right? I mean, there's a really good one, which is where he thinks he has dispatched Stephen Dorff by cutting him in half, and then behind him, Stephen Dorff reforms after having become one with the uh, the Blood God Magma, mm. or whatever the hell its name is. Blood for and, the Blood God. Uh, and he reforms, and you see Wesley Snipes looking at it, and he silently mouths, "What the fuck?" And that's not, yeah, that's you know, it, it doesn't, you know, leave you holding your sides. You know, it's not you're not rolling in the aisles laughing. No, but it's effective. But it's, it's effective. Good. Yeah, I think it, actually, if you think about it, the funniest thing in that film is Stephen Dorff's hairstyle because he has this kind of short, spiky do, but he also has long individual bits that come forward. If you went into a hairdresser and asked for that, I guarantee you a monstrosity. But it looks quite cool on him, or it did in the nineties. And I just, I, I genuinely wonder about the thought process behind that haircut. Anyway, it's a very niche visual guy, but I was amused. I have so many questions about vampires. Uh, could a vampire be a Reacher? We don't know. Could a vampire be a Santa Claus? We don't know. Could a vampire be a Dracula? We will never find out. Uh, anyway, a what? I think on that note, that is it for our list of questions this week. Apologies for everything that we just said. Uh, if you want to have your question read out in the Empire podcast, uh, just wait for something to come up in the zeitgeist and then vaguely reframe it on Twitter. Uh, I'm at Chris Hewitt on Twitter. You can wait for a panicked shout out every now and again. You can slide into my DMs uh, with a question if you feel that you need to slide into my DMs. If you feel it's just a question that can be asked as a normal tweet, then go ahead and do that. Anyway, should we, we got a whole bunch of guests this week, so should we get into it? Let's do it. Yes, let's do it. And let's start with Lashana Lynch and Sheila Atim. 
uh, who are two of the stars of The Woman King, which is Gina Prince-Bythewood's epic action-packed drama. It's in cinemas right now, and it's about an all-female warrior unit that protected the West African kingdom of... I'm going to pronounce it as Dahomey. I haven't seen the film Dahomey, but it might be Dahomey. Apologies if I'm getting that wrong. Uh, it stars Viola Davis, Lashana Lynch, who's having a one heck of a year. Sheila Atim, also a fantastic actor who's had an amazing year. She's been in the likes of uh, Pinocchio and Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. Although, yes, admittedly, blink and you'll miss her in the latter. And John Boyega and many, many more amazing actors. And we send Helen here to talk to Lashana Lynch and Sheila Atim about making The Woman King. And what else, Helen? What else, What did you talk about? Yeah, mostly that and just the, the sheer uh, excitement of this film, you know, centering a, a whole group of, uh, you know, incredible warrior women um, and working with Viola Davis, uh, you know, shooting in Africa and everything else, I hope. I forget, honestly, it was a blur, but they were lovely. You talked to them about blur. Okay, which is your favourite <laughs> blur album? Uh, for me, it's The Great Escape. Okay. All right. Okay, here we go. <laughs> Lashana Lynch and Sheila Atim. Do please enjoy. Hi, Sheila. Hi, Lashana. Um, first of all, amazing movie. Absolutely loved it. So how how does it happen that you get involved with a movie like this? Do you literally get a call saying, we want you to be Viola Davis's right-hand woman? What do you think? <laughs> I think I would probably <laughs> scream my head off and pee myself if that's <laughs> not the call <laughs> I got. Not like I didn't do that because <laughs> it wasn't near that experience. Um, I Yeah, usual way I got a call from my my team and said that, for the first time, really, a director had thought of you for um, this role and um, she just wanted to have a chat. So I jumped on a Zoom with Gina Prince-Bythewood and just talked about it, which was wild and amazing. And having been a fan of hers for years, I was ready to just be anything in any film for her. Um, and yeah, and then we just kept talking and we developed a Zoki. It feels like it happened really organically, actually. And Sheila, how about you? Was it a similar process? Not quite a similar. I I came on board much later and I had met Gina as part of a general meeting months before. And then the editor of the film, uh, Terry Lynn Shropshire, um, she also edited Bruised, which is a film that I was in, a Netflix film with Halle Berry. Um, thanks. And <laughs> um, she had pointed me out to Gina in a friends and family screening and said I might be right for the role. So I had a, a meeting with Gina and an audition and um, Halle Berry was very kind enough to send over some of the footage from Bruce to pitch me to Sony because the film hadn't come out yet. So it was very much a kind of beautiful collaborative effort behind the scenes um, with this sort of community of black female filmmakers. Yeah, and, and a beautiful collaborative effort in front of the scenes as well when it when it did come together. Because, look, I've talked to like actresses throughout my career in journalism and and so often they will say it's so nice to be in a film with another woman any other woman you know yeah. <laughs> uh let alone for for black women to be with other black women for dark-skinned black women to be with other dark-skinned black women it feels like this is a an all too rare opportunity in many ways even now even post you know black panther and post Black Lives Matter and post Me Too and, and post some kind of awakening in Hollywood, it feels like this is still really special. Yeah. Is that, is, is that right? I mean, yeah. just as an outsider looking in, you know? Yeah. No, absolutely. It's, uh, yeah. It, and it's one of those things that you sort of know um, 
you know that ideologically, but there's a difference between knowing that and then experiencing what it's like to be in an environment where you you can connect with those people, you can collaborate with those people. It it kind of shifts something inside you internally. And mm-hmm. you I, I think I really felt the gravity of what that actually meant, you know, as opposed to it just being a sort of an idea that we all know we're striving towards to actually be in an environment where I can feel the benefits of that in practice rather than in theory um, was just, yeah, like that's, it's a really difficult thing to describe, which is why it's so important for these opportunities to exist so that lots of people can experience it for real and just know what it means to have that. I think also the the world teaches you that it's it's difficult it's a challenge to be able to create these spaces for us that when it happened there almost is a an expectancy of um big gratitude that it's happened you know i'm grateful that this happened because it may not happen again and let's just um take the experience for what it is because we're gonna turn around tomorrow and go back to um, business as usual um but with this um I was really mindful of not having that level of gratitude, just sitting in the space and being present with it and expecting more from my industry. Mm -hmm. I'm expecting also more from myself in how I speak to the industry about what I believe um, the direction that we need to go in is. And also with this, I, I just felt wow, it's, it's easy. <laughs> it's easy. You just make the calls and you, you make the schedules align and it just happens. Yeah. And then you get a great film from it and you get happy faces who are happy to discuss how wonderful the experience was. And then you get men learning how easy it is to get these women together, right? You get heads of studios who see how easy it is and how great the collaboration can be. Um, so I really learned how easy the process can be and how, how swift we can do it. Take a, it took a long time for this to come together. I think Violet Davis and um, Julius Tenen um, and a production company spent seven years trying to get this production together. But then in terms of casting everyone, there's women jumping at the chance to be able to play women like this, mm-hmm. jumping every, around the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, this was cast from around the world, London, Nigeria, South Africa, America. Um, and it just shows that everyone is ready to do it. They've been ready. They're bursting. And now the industry just needs to follow suit. It's just so euphoric. Having seen this with a big audience, the reaction in the room is just, it's just unbelievable. It's unbelievable. It's, it's an amazing thing. I gather, however, though, that it wasn't necessarily the easiest shoot. Now, Gina said she took it as a mark of, of um, success that this was uh, described as the toughest ever shoot by a lot of her cast. Um, but I think it was also the toughest ever shoot for her. So, you know, you were doing, I, I, and I know it's the most boring thing in the world to ask an actor about training, but you were doing an extraordinary amount of training for this film. I mean, what, five, six hours a day? That is crazy. Yes. It took that though. It took that from the jump. As soon as you read it on the page, the the ideas are so visceral. Um, Gina's um, idea for the shoot we knew was going to be 100% across the board. And she assured, um, ensured that the heads of department that she had on board, people behind the camera, um, you know, everyone she could rally together to ensure that we knew we had to be on the same page at all times and make sure that we were as artists supported enough to give our best work. Mm-hmm. Um, so we had to give 100% with the training because I think it's 
it's nice to come to work and, and say that you did all of the things, mm-hmm. you know, I really, really appreciate um, stunts and um, stunt performers. And I thought we would be rely on them, rely on them a little more with this. But it's nice that Gina came to us and was like, I believe you as a female filmmaker that you can actually do this yourself. Um, and she can have the choices within the edit to choose any, any rush, any daily um, of us being physical um, and showing our hard work and have the characters be truly represented within those stunts. Um, it's it's special, but it was hard. Very, very, very hard. Um, but we've got great work to show for it. So, Yeah, you do. And, and what, what I find fascinating as well is you all have your own different styles, like the two of you, even as, as sort of leaders of this group, your fighting styles are visibly different. You're visibly playing to your own strengths. You know, Sheila, it's all about kind of reach and your your height and your kind of graceful limbs, which I absolutely don't have. Um, so, you know, does that, that that must have been fun to kind of work out with the sunk crew as well. Maybe fun is the wrong word, but, you know, interesting. No, it was. It was. It was fun because I think, you know, one of the pitfalls that action films can fall into or films with action can fall into is that the action is treated as something completely separate from the story and the the humanity of the characters. Um, and you absolutely have to marry the two. It can't just be gratuitous. And um, particularly in a, in a project like this, which is also a historical drama as opposed to a, a fantasy or a superhero film, or, you know, where the, where the, um, where the this responsibility of the action lies in a slightly different place. Um, Gina wanted it to feel real and visceral, and it was important for all of us to be able to feed character through our fighting style. So, you know, Izogi was very, very different to Emenza because they're different people, because they have different stories, because they have different bodies as well and different abilities. And that's something that, you know, I, I'm really glad that we as actors were given the space to contribute to that process in that way, because we definitely, I know Lashana did, I did, came with our own ideas. Um, but also the team, you know, Gabby McLean, who who was our personal trainer, who worked on our body transformation, Danny Hernandez, who was our stunt coordinator, and Gina, um, were very intentional about making sure they played to our strengths, making sure they worked with us. I think it's a real... Um, it's a real triumph of the film that we are celebrated in our different body sizes and shapes and abilities and strengths. I think that's a wonderful thing. And I think it really showcases the teamwork as well between the warriors, because that's how it works, you know, for us to all fit together as a team, I pick up the area that you're maybe not as strong as, and Mm -hmm. and I can, I can support you in that way. And Mm -hmm. we can link, um, we can tessellate like that. So yeah, that was that. It was fun. Like it really was a fun part. It's another way to be creative, um, even in an area of the project where we were less experienced. You know, we were not stunt performers, um, but it was it was another chance to learn and, and grow and really flesh out the story. So I'm very grateful that we had that. As well as learning all of this fighting, as well as doing all this physical training, you were also learning like dance routines essentially and choreography yeah. and uh and singing and everything how, how did you guys take to that i mean sheila i guess you're you know you're you've got a singing background you've got a, a musical background did that help uh yes uh, <laughs> that song uh kind of transformed a couple of times so there was a version where i wasn't actually singing and then suddenly i was and i was like oh okay cool <laughs> we're gonna kick that into gear um and yeah, the dancing was, I mean, one of the hardest physical experiences 
ever. Of my life. Like, yeah. it, wow. it, it might not be easy to to see that from the from the film because it's kind of you know cut up with different things going on, but it was like a good like two minute dance full out the execution of it required a level of aggression yes that meant you know this is this is like a version of the hacker essentially like we we're, we're getting ourselves to go to war you could see the muscularity the intention the the you know i mean the agoje women fought without shields because they believed that they were protected by the ancestors so that has to come from somewhere you know that grounding that rooting um and it we really felt it when we were shooting it because our take after take it was the most exhausting thing ever but every single take we managed to find something else mm-hmm. um yeah and it was you know i mean we didn't know it was going to be in an all singing all dancing <laughs> musical but uh, <laughs> we ended up there and We'd always be like, I don't know if I signed off. <laughs> exactly. Where was this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I don't well, remember. Well, well, I remember seeing, oh, there's a dance. And then there was some dialogue. And I thought that was it. Literally. Um, I thought I exited. I was like, oh, that they're doing a dance. The other characters <laughs> are doing like, I'll just be somewhere else. I don't know, wielding my machete. Yeah. It's funny that Sheila is right. That's the hardest thing I think I've ever done physically yeah. in my life. And I've done previous stunts. I danced when I was younger. It's nothing in comparison to the 100% we had to give on every single take. And I remember weirdly feeling sick yeah. that day. It wasn't anything but like high adrenaline and, and just general panic. Um, but before every take, just quiet panic. panic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I remember um, I was kind of hiding before a wall. Um, ready for action. And Gabby, our trainer would be like, girl, you're okay. And I'm like, no, I feel like I'm going to keel over. I don't know what's happening. And she's like, it's just adrenaline. Just breathe, breathe through it. And I was walking through the take like this until I reached the women. And then just this rush of power and support came over me and everyone. And we were able to just bang it out. And at the end of the take to be like, so what do we get? What happened? It's like we blanked. Almost. It's funny that you say that because I, I'm at the other end of the at the beginning of that sequence and yeah. I would always have butterflies in my stomach because I was like, I, I don't know if I can get through it again. Mm-hmm. As Lashana's walking down, I'm like, no, she's coming, she's coming and I have to do it again. But then when she arrived and then we'd line up together, similar thing where I was like, okay, and now we're in and we're we're just, in. it's just all guns blazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. It's an amazing kind of powerful joyful sight on screen. It looks effortless, if that's any comfort. I don't know if that's comfort yeah, or not. you. <laughs> my knees were, were yeah. under effort. <laughs> and, uh, tell me about your characters a little bit, because uh, I haven't sort of specifically talked about them, but um, it, it strikes me that there's an amazing kind of contrast between the two, because they are both very, very senior in this organisation. I don't know if there are ranks per se, or if they, they kind of almost seem like a, a sort of, I don't know, assistant general is that a word doesn't seem like it and yeah. and kind of yeah <laughs> and uh and a, a sort of you know right hand woman basically confidant really to uh to to Naniska but was that a something that was there in the script all along was that something you kind of developed a lot as you went through yeah it was it was there the but we did also pull it out in the specificities yeah of what like, each of us mean yeah to yeah. her and what that triangle will look like and yeah. feel like. And also how we would negotiate the having her ear. So on on pay on the paper, you would see that obviously Amenza is right there with Niniska the whole time. And I my more backstory was 
okay, so how does Azogi influence Niniska's decisions? Mm. How does she get information from Amenza? I remember we had a conversation about like, yeah. what, what kind of conversations will we have about, okay, yeah. does she need tea today? Like, <laughs> how's she feeling? Is she emotional? Yeah, she's doing yeah, that, she's thing. Doing that thing, again. thing again. Yeah, how do you take care of your leader um, in front of others and, and in the dark, if you like? Um, and Azogi was able to, to do that, but also keep enough poise and enough power to concentrate on these young women who come into the palace from different backgrounds, different pasts, um, ready to be in a gochie. And um, considering she thinks she's the best, she um, has um, lined herself up to be the one in charge of making them the best. And she creates these really beautiful connections with these young women, particularly Naoi, played by the brilliant Tussauds and Bedou. Um, and the, she reminds um, Azogi of her younger self, coming from a broken background and, you know, um, being encouraged to make really tough decisions as a young girl. Um, and now we, she is able to impart the wisdom that Niniska imparted on Azogi, but also um, learn from her, um, which I think is um, testament to a great leader or a great person in charge who is able to see someone who comes into the fold brand new and is able to absorb greatness from them. Um, and I think now he does that just throughout the story. She just has this wonderful ripple effect on, on people. Um, but Azogi is one of the most funny characters I think I've played ever. And I didn't even know she was funny until I saw like a car film. <laughs> yeah. like, nice. She's, she's really cool. I want to be her friend. <laughs> 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 yeah, whereas Amenza is more sort of the the, the quiet counsellor, the sort of watcher and listener and then talk about it out later, I guess, a little bit. Yeah, yeah. She's always like, OK, it looks a bit mad, so I'm just going to let that happen. And then I'm going to rush into her room later being like, what's going on? <laughs> Why'd you do that? Why'd you say that? What's the matter? Uh, yeah. And I think, yeah, I think in their individual sort of characterizations, there was a lot on the page, but... The, the thing that really did emerge over the course of filming was the relationship between the two of them. I think once it became, once we figured out what each one meant to Naniska, we were then able to actually use, use more of the, the fact that they were so different mm. um, and then to have them contrast with each other, but in close proximity, which I think is a really nice thing. We've talked a lot about sisterhood over the course of this sort of press tour. And I think it's nice to show sisterhood between characters that are very different rather than all of us being kind of homogenous because that's just easier to do. I think it's important to show that we're all different but can coexist and work together. Um, so that was something that really did, you know, develop over the course of shooting as well. So yes, yeah, so can wait, would you sequel maybe? Ooh, Gina, hello. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, fingers well, crossed. Yeah. Are we ready no to do that dance again? Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's the yeah. first thing on my mind. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thank, Thank you. you. Okay, so that was Lashana Lynch and Sheila Atim. And we are going to be doing a spoiler special for The Woman King, which I haven't seen, but I understand is pretty belting and mm. very, very much one to get into in terms of the old spoiler special treatment. And uh, so Helen spoke to Gina prince Bythewood, so we've got the interview in the bag. And once the film comes out, we're going to be recording our spoiler special and getting it up at some point this month. Uh, although from a spoiler special perspective, if you're a subscriber to our spoiler special channel, uh, most of the film stuff that's going to go up this month is going to be about scary films. Why is that? That's because it's Halloween. Oh yes, indeed folks. So uh, I've been off with COVID this week. So 
the black phone, the long-awaited black phone spoiler special with Scott Derrickson is going to go up, hopefully today. We shall see about that, but certainly over the weekend. And we're also going to be doing spoiler specials, a retro one for Event Horizon. We're going to be doing the Dashcam spoiler special with director Rob Savage and writers Gemma Hurley and Jed Shepard. And so there's going to be more. There's going to be more stuff as well. And people are asking about Hellraiser. Uh, the remake of Hellraiser, David Bruckner's remake of Hellraiser, which has debuted this week on Hulu, Hulu in the States, doesn't seem to have a UK distributor yet. I have asked several distributors that, with whom it's likely to pop up, and I've been told that they know nothing at this point, that there is no, there's no sign of it, uh, which is a shame because it looks terrific. Uh, but if that does pop up, we will be hoping to do a spoiler special for that as well with the director, David Bruckner. Anyway, The Woman King will be popping up on your spoiler special feed, along with a whole bunch of TV stuff very, very soon indeed. Anyway, should we get into the week's movie news? And there's actually quite a bit of it now. Yeah, well, do you want to start with that Super Mario trailer so I can just like basically tune out for a minute? I mean, I mean, because I have lots to say about it. Um, I'm such a big gamer and also I love penguins. So this is just a treat for me. It's got everything for you. I, 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 the one question I have for watching this is I'm unclear because Chris Pratt, you don't hear a lot of his dialogue in this. It's like three lines, two lines. I can't quite work out if he's trying to do a slight Italian accent or not. I'm leaning towards he might be. What did you think? So is is the story meant to be that he's like a gamer character like then like stuck in the game as Mario? Like is that oh. is that what they're doing with I this? I have absolutely no idea. I didn't get that from the trailer, but that could well be the story. I, I just got that impression from the whole hey, what's going on? What's well, yeah, this he does mushroom? look confused, oh, doesn't touch, he? Touch he's like, "Oh, what am I doing here?" So maybe he has become Mario and that explains why he's not going okie dokie. Uh, you know, is that what Mario does? He does. I mean, of course, that's what Mario it's does. Mario. I'm a huge gamer, and I'm aware of that. So. Mario's Italian accent is the most authentic. In <laughs> it is history of pop culture. Yeah. Um. And I, I, I guess maybe they're running a little bit scared of the fact that Mario's accent in the video games is, shall we say, possibly over exaggerated. I don't know what you mean. But it seems to me that most people don't have a problem with that because it is so cartoonish and it is. So over the top, it's a bit like um, the Italian guy in a low, a low, whose accent was similarly <laughs> over the top. You know, what a mistake at the maker. You know, I, 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 can, I don't know, maybe people do have a problem with that sort of uh, cliche and that sort of stereotype. But uh, well, he doesn't I don't really know. speak in the games. It's many makes like sound like, oh, ha, he makes little noises when he jumps. He doesn't really speak a lot. He, he does say things like, okie dokie, but that's basically it. I think it was only in, I want to say Super Mario Sunshine, there was one of the games where he actually speaks all his dialogue and it's horrific and it's right, upsetting. <laughs> exactly. And they never did it again after that because it was too horrible. So now they just stick to, you know, yippee. Okay. So he doesn't say it's a me, Mario. Oh, he does say that, yeah. He does he say says, that, okay. But he says, so he has like a few stock phrases, but beyond that. Right. Yeah. So, so my knowledge of the Mario games extends pretty much only to Mario Kart. All right. Because right. I'm terrible at platformers. I'm a Mario. I'm yeah, a so, Mario. So, so the, 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 exactly. So does this extend to Luigi? And Wario has a very, very thick Italian accent as well. And Wario is problematic for all kinds of reasons as well. But, you know, is are they going to be toned down too? I don't think Wario's in this, is he? Is he in this? Because it's mainly, it's, it's Mario versus Bowser, isn't it? That's the, that's the setup here. Right. And do they fire red shells at each other? 
uh, I'm almost certain there will be shells being thrown at some point. Well, then I'm in. I'm in. Uh, but in terms of Chris Pratt's voice, I, I I don't know. But he has promised us something we've never heard before. Well, I guess technically, I suppose that might be right. I I did ask a, an Italian friend about this, um, uh, and uh, can can you comment on the accent? I said, and he said I did watch it, and yes, it's Pratt, but uh, who cares? Uh, there is a not my Mario tag on Twitter, and I find it stupid. It's mm-hmm. a movie for a game for kids. So. <laughs> incisive. Now, Helen, incisive. that was a terrible Italian accent. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't got any excitement about this movie whatsoever. But Jimbo, you're, a, you're a massive gamer. Do you? I, I liked, I liked the way it looked. I thought the visuals were were quite sumptuous. You can see every little hair and his little moustache, which is weird because Mario's moustache is normally a kind of a, a smeared brown mass. So it actually has bristles now. And there's also been some controversy because apparently he has less of a bottom than he should. He, I mean, he is. It's it's Italy's ass, Helen. <laughs> yes, yes, and 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 apparently this is not in the game. Like he doesn't. It's have. not Italy's ass. No. Uh, yes, they may have toned down his his little plumber buttocks. I'm, I couldn't tell you what the creative decision was there, but uh, yes, he has. He's packing slightly less. Uh, Drunk in the trunk. That's right. A little bit less. Maybe okay. maybe he kept his equipment in there and they decided to take it out, which must have been a wrench. Yeah. Talk about mud flaps. Mario's got them. Oh, no. What a spanner. Oh, no. You're both terrible. Uh, anyway, so, yeah, Super Mario Brothers trailer is out there if you want to watch it on the YouTubes. And uh, the trailer this week, the second trailer for Black Panther Wakanda Forever also dropped. And we spoke about that in great detail if you want to hear, well, certainly... My take on it and Helen's take on it and Amon Warman's take on it. We recorded a very delirious spoiler special at very late at night on Tuesday when I was in the grip of COVID at its worst. Um, but I think it I think it came out pretty well. I think it came out pretty yeah. well, Helen. Yeah. But Jimbo, you, you weren't on that one because it was, was past not. your bedtime. You were asleep. It was. Um, clutching your little reacher plushie. <laughs> what was what was your take on this one? I liked it. I like it doesn't have the the quite the same impact with the musical cues that the previous one did. But in terms of visuals, obviously we get a nice full body shot of the new Black Panther, who has certain, shall we say, white dot marks on her face piece, which may give the clearest indicator yet as who is I mean, inside said armor. It's, it's clearly Shuri. Shuri. It's She's clearly a Shuri, Shuri thing. Uh, yes, it's, it's <laughs> Shuri, definitely Shuri. It's hundred percent Shuri. Um, <laughs> I don't know why we're beating around this particular bush, but yes, it's it's clearly Shuri. That's what I said but, in the podcast. Um, like, why why are they hiding this when it's so clearly it Shuri? It's clearly Shuri. Like, it looks like Shuri. It's roughly her proportions. It has the same face mark. It's fucking Shuri. It makes sense um, from a story point of view that it would be Shuri. Yeah, I I, I don't understand. Yeah, why are they doing this? Mm, I don't know. I don't know. I'm sure there will be an unmasking at some point. But yeah, I mean, you know, it looks it looks great. It looks properly great. I am properly excited. Yeah, I am as well. So go mm. and check out the uh, spoiler special. It's not a spoiler special, but it's a trailer breakdown uh, in our regular feed. Uh, and can I just say, I don't know whether you guys saw this trailer, but the, the trailer I liked, <laughs> surprisingly liked this week, was Shotgun Wedding. Me too. I'm so hyped. <laughs> this is the one where um, J-Lo and Josh Demel are getting married um, and on a sort of tropical island, everything is is shaping up nicely until terrorists attack <laughs> and they have to uh, literally wield shotguns etc um to to get through to their honeymoon i i i find this absolutely delightful i'm i'm so enjoying um jlo's second time around at the rom-com genre loving it yeah although i have to say i don't need to see the film anymore now i've seen the trailer 
I mean, there's a certain degree of that, but I feel like, you know, we don't see why she loved the cake knife and who she probably killed with it. So I think I feel like there are still mysteries there to be answered. Uh, so I'd recommend you watch the trailer, but stop after minute 30. <laughs> Very wise. That's, that's my recommendation. All right, there's loads and loads of stuff to get into. And uh, we should talk about quickly the fact that this hasn't been announced officially, but it looks like Marvel have found... The writer for the sixth Avengers movie, the one that's going to finish off Phase Six, the the big one. Uh, not that Kang Dynasty is not going to be a big one, but Avengers Secret Wars has got a writer, and that writer, and this may be not a huge shock, given mm-hmm. his prominence within the organization of recent, uh, but it's Michael Waldron who was the head writer on Loki season one, and he wrote Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. Came on obviously when Scott Derrickson. Exited left, pursued by a grabber. And yeah, how do you feel about this one? Yeah, Loki definitely gives me a lot of hope for this because I thought that was terrific. And I think, you know, from all we know about um, Multiverse of Madness, it feels like there were a lot of cooks in that broth. Uh, So I don't feel like any one person is responsible for all the bad or the good stuff in that. You know, I feel like that's a very much a shared responsibility situation. So, um, so yeah, I'm, I'm hopeful for this. I think this is good, but it's, it's too far out to really say. We, we have, I have very little conception of what that film is going to be. I know that uh, certain members of our team have made grand pronouncements about who it will be about, <laughs> naming no Chris's or Mons, but, uh, <laughs> but I, I am like just waiting happily to see what happens. So, Ellen, yeah. That- those final scenes between Doctor Doom, the chief villain of that movie, <laughs> and Robert Downey Jr. as Tony Stark yeah, are going yeah. to be absolutely Just wild. And then when Hugh yeah. Jackman comes in as Wolverine. Like snicked all over the place. Oh and my then God. a shield a shield flies oh, into uh, yep. into the into the fray and it goes back to its owner and it's Chris Evans. Oh my God! Not Can't your Chris it. Evans, the one from "Don't Forget Your Toothbrush." Uh, oh, and that is a people shock! People <laughs> are going to lose their goddamn lose minds. Their minds. Yeah, that's a Hugh. Better believe it, buddy. You can take that right to the Hugh Bank. Yeah, we shall see. I'm, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic. I am quietly excited. All right, Jonas Quaron, who is the son of Alfonso Quaron has signed on to direct Bad Bunny in Sony's Spider-Man-less Spider-Man spin-off El Muerto about a, a Latino wrestler who becomes imbued with the powers of being in a Spider-Man movie without Spider-Man. And we directed a little bit of shade towards this project when it was first announced, but once again, as with things like Craven the Hunter, which is directed by J.C. Jandor, this is good people on a decent mm-hmm. project, and Bad Bunny was good in his brief cameo in Bullet Train. He was. He was solid in that. Um, I, I do get very confused every time I see a headline or a tweet about this project, because Bad Bunny sounds like it should be a superhero name in itself, so I keep going, oh, I haven't read those comics, Bad Bunny. Yeah, I know. Oh, yeah. wait, it's El Muerto. Um but yeah, no, look, I'm hoping for the best as ever and and hopefully they find an interesting spin on this and an interesting way into it um, that doesn't end up being a bit Venom, frankly. So, fingers venom, crossed. Venom, 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 venom. Sony is trying to bring back Tarzan. I would strongly urge them not to. Again, I am begging Hollywood. You have so many creative people who are there pitching you original ideas every day. You don't have to keep remaking the same six stories. Um, I, I feel like Tarzan was done recently. It didn't work, despite very good people being involved. So let's just give it a bit of a rest for now, personally. Mm-hmm. And if you want original stories, come to me. 
Satan nerve. A possessed wow. sat nerve that tries to kill you at the next left. Die! Yeah, it's, it's astonishing that they don't come to you, Chris, with, with great ideas like that. Um, better news, even though it's not original. Hashtag six seasons in a movie. There's a community yes. movie happening. Um, I know that later seasons weren't quite as transcendent as the early ones. I don't care. I'm still hyped and I hope for the best for the movie. So um, everyone's or most people are back at least. And I'm hoping yes. that um, no it really, Lover. really works. Chevy no Chase's Donald absence Lover. is to be expected. Yvette Nicole Brown is mm. not going to be in the movie either, which is a shame. But I was hoping that, and, and hey, listen, they may be able to find room for Donald Glover. He may come back and do a little cameo at the end as as Troy. But yeah, community never really felt like community once he left to me. Yeah, he and Danny Pudi were such a great double act that I just really want them back together. But um, but as long as, you know, Jim Rash turns up with some ridiculous puns and some hilarious costumes, I'm, I'm still probably going to have some fun with it. Yes, indeed. Six seasons and a movie is finally happening. Uh, and that makes me very, very happy. And speaking of things that are finally happening that make me very, very happy, Now You See Me 3 <laughs> is that was gonna finally be the story. <laughs> stepping oh, up to the start line as the world's biggest and perhaps only fan of both Now You See Me <laughs> movies. I am excited about the return of the Four Horsemen, only two of whom are confirmed for, for this movie. I just, I don't, I don't, I don't remember anything about the sequel. Was no, Daniel Radcliffe I. was in it? Daniel yeah, Radcliffe was in it. Yeah, Daniel I remember Radcliffe. one thing about the sequel. Uh, there was a couple, there's a couple of things. They, they shot um, in Greenwich. They shot at the old Round Level College. There's a big I do there's remember a big that. Finale. Okay, now that you say it. And Vegas, question mark? Yeah. I remember very little about the, the sequel as well. Uh, my love for Now You See Me is based entirely on the first film. Uh, but the, the third film, it's been a few years now since the second film, which I, was, which I was astonished to learn this week, took $600 million at the, at the worldwide box office the when it came out. The second film did. The second film took $600 million. Wow. And despite that, it's taken them ages to make a third film. Because Now You See Three or Now You Three Me, I mean, that's just a given as a title, right? And so Ruben Fleischer has signed on to direct this. If you look at his filmography, you could decide whether you should be excited about that or not. But he obviously has formed working with Jesse Eisenberg and Woody Harrelson, because he directed them in both Zombieland movies, and they are the two members of the Four Horsemen who have signed on the line that is dotted to return for Now You See Me 3. No word yet on the other three members of the Four Horsemen. <laughs> so we have Dave Franco, we have Isla Fisher, who was in the first movie, but did not come back for the second movie, where she was replaced by Lizzie Kaplan, but playing a different character. And then, of course, the most important member... Oh, actual... That's spoiler for the first film. Do we care? Nah. Okay. The most important character across the, 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 the both movies, the character who actually kind of is the lead of the franchise, is Mark Ruffalo. So, I'd say no Ruffalo, no dice. Magical or otherwise. So we shall see. Yeah, they use more cards than dice, so that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm tremendously excited about this. They also have superpowers, which I never quite understood about that Do film. They? Woody Harrelson has a thing where if he slaps you on the shoulder, he suddenly has control of your mind. And I'm pretty sure the suggestion and hypnotism doesn't work that way. But sure, whatever floats your boat. 
Speaking of things that I'm excited about, which we weren't, but we should have been, um, Mm -hmm. Nosferatu is coming back to the big screen with Robert Eggers directing, and he now has his leading cast. Bill Skarsgård will be tackling another classic monster, uh, and Lily Rose Depp will be the sort of woman he's obsessed with. So... um, I don't know. I'm kind of hyped for this. Nosferatu is a horror classic in its own right, but it was an attempt to get around the copyright on yes. Dracula. Yes. So it's it's basically a Dracula ripoff, but one that has had its own life because it's so iconic. Just the the the, the look of the monster and everything else. If you saw Shadow of the Vampire about what twenty years ago now, it's um, it's it's also a great great take on the sort of Nosferatu legend. But yeah, I'm just really intrigued by what Robert Eggers will do with that story. And maybe this will answer the question that's long been on my mind. Can a Nosferatu beat a Dracula? Chris, um, I feel like... I don't know. Yeah, a, dra- a Dracula... You keep saying a Dracula mm. today. Mm. And first of all, it's upsetting that you're not no longer calling him Draclear. Um, but second of all, it's not a Dracula. That's a person. It's a, you know, it's an actual character. My apologies to the Dracula family. Uh, can a Nos- Nosferatu beat a Dracula? That's uh, that's the oh, question God. I hope will be cleared up in Nosferatu. Do you have to have seen, I mean, this is obviously a sequel, Nosferatu. Do you have to have seen the previous Nosferatu movie Nosferatu, in, order to, yeah. Yeah, to, in order to understand what's happening? Oh, my word. That's the good stuff. Morning. That is, is it- the good stuff. It's the COVID. It's burning me up. It's burning mm-hmm. me up. I can feel it burning me up from within. Uh Okay, so the last two stories that we're going to talk about are quite serious. So I'm banishing the COVID um, madness because the first one is that Emancipation, which is the Will Smith, Anton Fuqua drama uh, about slavery, is going to get a release on Apple, and I think in some cinemas, this year, because there was lots of speculation that after the Oscars and after Will Smith had his little temporary aberration, shall we say, and slapped Chris Rock. I don't know whether you've heard about it. It was in the news. Um, Some papers covered it. That, obviously, Will Smith was banished from the Oscars, banished from the land for for many, many years. And there was lots of conversation about how it was going to hurt his career and how it was going to push the release date of of Emancipation back uh, into next year or maybe even never get released but now Apple seem to be very, very confident with what they've got. I believe it's already been screened in the States uh, for certain critics. And uh, it may even be a player in the Oscar race. I would imagine that, you know, even though these things are meant to be based on merit, that no matter how good Will Smith's performance is in this movie, I would suspect he's not going to get an Oscar nomination for it. But it's certainly something that I think is uh, a very interesting development. What do you, what do you make of this? Yeah, I wasn't blown away by this trailer, if I'm honest. Um, I, I thought there were some really interesting kind of shots, some really beautiful kind of desaturated uh, look of this this swamp that he has to basically travel through to get to the Union Army as he tries to escape from the slaveholders of the South. Um, but I, it, it didn't, you know... I feel like if you're going to make a slavery drama, there has to be a really, really compelling case, and I'm I'm not yet clear what that is uh, for this movie. So I I hope that it has enough kind of um, power and meat and something to say that is fresh and new and isn't just more kind of misery porn because uh, you know it's it's not 
it's not a fun subject uh, and it's not a one that should be taken lightly or treated as entertainment. So so I hope it really genuinely has something new to say, basically. Absolutely. And that's going to be out on Apple TV Plus uh, and I think also in some cinemas uh, later on in the year, probably around December. Uh, and it was also announced this week that Knives Out 2, uh, A Glass Onion, A Knives Out Mystery, to give it its proper and correct title, will be uh, screening in some cinemas across the the States the week before it hits Netflix. Um, I think it's going to do a cinematic release here as well. So keep your eyes out for that one. And speaking of cinemas, that brings us to some very, very sad and concerning news, mm. quite frankly, that the Edinburgh International Film Festival, one of the oldest film festivals in the world, just celebrated its 75th anniversary and is the world's longest running, continually running film festival because obviously Cannes stopped for a couple of years because of, or at least one year because of COVID, is at the moment not going to happen ever again. It has stopped trading with immediate effect, along with the Edinburgh Filmhouse, great cinema up there in Edinburgh, and the Belmont Cinema in Aberdeen, where they have stopped trading with immediate effect because the charity that runs them, Centre for the Moving Image, has called in administrators. Um, there's a lot of factors behind this story, obviously. Uh, the Centre for the Moving Image have have cited sharply rising costs, the the fact that fewer people are going to the cinema at the moment, um, despite the, you know, the, the success of things like Top Gun Maverick and the impending arrival of Avatar 2 and Black Panther 2, that you know, over the last few weeks, in particular the last few weeks and months, there's been a real dearth of the big ticket must-see movies, and people aren't really going to see the smaller films that are opening in cinemas, uh, which is which is a shame. So that, along with things like the energy bill crisis, mm -hmm. which has seen businesses just having to deal with these incredible, and obviously everybody having to deal with these incredible um, and ridiculous energy bill uh, increases. All of that stuff has just come together to, to create what they called a perfect storm. And so with immediate effect, 102 people have lost their jobs across those cinemas and across the Edinburgh International Film Festival, a film festival, of course, that we have done a live show at on a couple of occasions and we have yeah. great affection for. And this is tremendously sad. Our hearts go out, obviously, to everybody who's affected by this. We would hope that some rich, benevolent benefactor will step in to save these cinemas and to save the Edinburgh International Film Festival. Um, someone who works for the for this charity or someone who works for the film festival yesterday said it would take about 1.5 million at the moment to keep things running, to keep things going. Uh, I don't have that sort of, sort of cash, but maybe someone listening to this knows someone who does. and Or maybe there's even some sort of government intervention. I know, but there yeah. might be some sort of government intervention, something like that. But this is tremendously sad. As I say, hearts go out to everyone affected by this. But this is, this is also deeply concerning because, you know, obviously there was the, the news a few weeks ago that Cineworld and by extension Picture House uh, might also be looking at going into administration or even declaring bankruptcy or, you know, might be some sort of financial difficulties. And this seems to be something that's hitting the industry and the trade in general right now. All these great, big, fast auditoriums are having to deal with fastly inflated energy bills right now and fewer people coming in to help pay those energy bills. It feels like this might be just the beginning of a fairly bleak period for cinema. 
Yeah, it's very, very worrying. And I think, I mean, certainly in the case of something like this, you would hope that um, if we had a sensible government, they might actually support the arts, which have values far beyond the monetary values, but you know, also do cr- contribute a huge amount to the UK economy. Um, you know, the the amount of films being made, shot, VFX here is vast, and uh, to get people who are going to work on these things, you need to inspire them, and you need to do that at things like film festivals and and at um, cinemas, you know, like those. Um, affected by this news and it's just it's just a horror show of a situation um so yeah so just more money for the arts because it does pay itself back in ways tangible and not a million times over and and it shouldn't always be first on the cutting block and it shouldn't lead to situations like this where they're struggling to survive but yeah, yeah I absolutely echo what you said thoughts out to all those affected because it's a horrible horrible situation to be in like I say, our hearts go out to everyone affected, and I hope that a solution can be found very, very quickly Amen. indeed. All right, time now for our next pair of guests. Steve Coogan was on this podcast just a couple of weeks ago, folks, plugging his latest Alan Partridge podcast from the Oast House Series 2. But he's already back, back, back on his Empire podcast bullshit, not because he enjoyed the experience so much, I'm guessing he very much didn't, but because he's got another project to plug, The Prolific Beggar. This time, it's The Lost King, which is a movie which sees him reunite with director Stephen Frears and co-writer Jeff Pope for the first time since Philomena, which is the movie, of course, that netted Pope and Coogan, Jeff Pope, not the Pope, and Coogan, an Oscar nomination. Can, can the Pope win an Oscar nomination? I guess if he writes and directs a movie, right? The Pope? Yeah. Could the the pope, actual Pope. Yeah, could the Pope get an Oscar or would he be ruled out on like grounds that he's the Pope? I, th- I think he's eligible. I don't believe they have a specifically anti-papist law yeah. in the by- bylaws and I regulations. I guess what I'm asking is, if I was the king or the pope and I wanted to write and direct a film, could I win an Oscar? Yes. If you were any good. Which I'm sensing the pope probably isn't. You don't know? Hey, you don't know, hey. that's true. You don't know. He might be a, a very gifted filmmaker. <laughs> Would he direct it from the Pope-mobile? That's the question. Yes, Obviously. With, a, with a little Pope loud hater. And Pope, is what he would say. Yeah. That movie netted <laughs> Jeff Pope and Steve Coogan an Oscar nomination. Time will tell if The Lost King does the same, but it's an interesting film that purports to tell the story, particularly from the point of view of one person, Sally Hawkins' Philippa Langley, of how the body of Richard III was unearthed from beneath a car park in Leicester back in 2012. Big story, and I could not believe this happened in 2012. I wanted to speak to Coogan and Pope together to get a sense of how their writing partnership worked and works and how it's going to work in the future because this is not the last film they're going to make together. So here it is. Oh, and um, Steve Cookins in a hotel room and Jeff Pope was outside, out and about in Liverpool where I presume he's either prepping or filming his Cary Grant ITV series with Jason Isaacs because Jeff Pope likes to write about real people and sometimes famous people. So you also wrote Stan and Ollie, in case you're wondering. Yeah, great movie. So, great movie. Anyway, here's the interview. Enjoy. We are delighted to be joined on the Emperor Podcast by the writers of The Lost King, Steve Coogan and Jeff Pope. How are you guys? Very good. Very good. Good, thanks. Excellent. Uh, Steve, you're in a very well-appointed hotel room, as I would expect. Jeff, you have to explain to the people where you are. Is that, is that St. John's Shopping Centre behind you in Liverpool? Correct. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, uh, I try, it's a desperate, rather pathetic attempt to find somewhere quiet. For this, because I then have to get on a train and just hit a schedule. So 
this was the uh, rather rubbish result of my uh, my my search. Anyway, there's no one around. <laughs> It's all, all it's, right. it's it's quite quiet, so I think we'll be okay. We'll be okay. But uh, but I, I thought you might be in the same room together, uh, writing the next thing. We we uh, do always write in the same room. Yeah, we do almost always write in the same room. Actually, yeah, I mean occasionally by podcast, but we like to be uh, in the same space. Somehow it sort of make frees things up, makes things move faster. Yeah. And I, I I wanted to dig into this relationship because how did it begin for you both this this writing partnership? Oh crikey! Well, yeah, it was when I got the rights to the book "The Lost Child of Philomena Lee" by Martin Sixsmith, mm-hmm. and I and I someone uh, recommended um, Jeff as a writer and said he'd worked with Caroline Ahern, who was a very good friend of mine mm. and said, you know, he's really good. You'll like him. Um, uh, I mean, it was Christine Langan. Don't mind admitting that. Uh, Christine uh, put me on to Jeff. I met Jeff and I liked him straight away. I like, you know, the, the, he, he, Jeff already had a great provenance with um, lots of things he'd written. He did a film that I saw at the time uh, called Peer Point about um, mm. The Last Hangman. And I loved that film and I loved the way the story was told. And we just start, got talking about how we'd write this story. And, um, and, and through that grew a sort of friendship and professional uh, relationship that's been quite fruitful and feels quite comfortable um, partly, I think, because Jeff and I are from relatively modest backgrounds in that we are not uh, the, the children of the great and the good. Well, the good, but they're not, not great. Um, <laughs> the sort of, uh, yeah, I know what you mean. You know what I mean? Well, I mean <laughs> the great, but great as in smashing great, not as in Alexander the Great. But, yeah. yeah, okay, gotcha. But, but um, uh, so... And, you know, Jeff uh, started as a journalist on a local paper. Uh, uh, Neither of us went to university, uh, never mind Oxford or Cambridge. So we sort of, um, and um, we're sort of autodidacts. We're both self-taught. Over the years, we sort of garner information and avariciously consume uh, 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 information. And so I don't know, we're both coming from the same place if you like. And I think that that helps us when it comes to storytelling, because we don't patronize our audience. Um, but we want to be we want to entertain, we don't want to be esoteric either. So we like to find that ground where we can entertain, be funny, be edgy, um, but, 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 you know, put some love into it. Not we're not scared or terrified of tenderness or sincerity, and say something serious in, in, an, in, in an enjoyable way. Uh, and so all, all that stuff feels very natural, I think, to both me and Jeff. They are, Jeff. You don't have to say anything now. I've said it all for you. No, I'm just going to say that and the cars. Yeah. I was always really interested to look at his collection because I knew he had some really great motors. <laughs> now the truth and it comes- also sounded dangerously like what our parents were. We, we, our father was Jim Bowen, as in great smashing. Yeah, great. <laughs> uh, no, it's not. Uh, well, your dad worked for technical, and my dad worked for IBM. They were sort of yeah. like, but they were socially and professionally aspirant, weren't they? They wanted to better themselves, not just in a material way, but just you know, just to to improve the lives of their families. And uh, that was a that was a that was. Well, a- I, 
my dad's it's, so I might have told you this thing. my dad's great claim to fame in the in the road where we lived which was a council estate was he was the first person in the road to have a television that could get BBC two really <laughs> but but, he's so proud of that yeah well that that says everything that because we knew BBC two meant that you were clever if you watched, <laughs> if you watched BBC two <laughs> we just watched it just to seem clever Jeff from your point of view what was it like you know when you, when you get that, that call because you, you know Chemistry is, is everything, isn't it? Is chemistry is everything when you're when you're an actor and a director, and I imagine it's exactly the same when you're two writers who are suddenly thrown into a into a partnership together. So, at what point did you yeah. realize it was going to click? Well, you're right because there's if if you're going to see something through to the end, that's it's not. I was going to say at many hours, it's it's it's, it's years. You know, you're gonna you're gonna hang out on and off for years, and so I think the key to it. With, 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 you know, there's a, I'm getting one of those kind of, you don't look at it too hard because it makes it go away or something, or, you know, it threatens it. But the, I think the key is that we both um, can tell each other something is rubbish. If we, if we come up with an idea, we can both say, nah, that, that's awful, that's shit. And neither of us will take offence. Yeah, that's very true. We have to save a lot of time. We have to do a little dance around or also... I think there's a certain uh, brevity to expression when you've got a kind of a, 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 a robust way of expressing yourself. It saves a lot of time. You yeah. don't have to go around the houses. You just say things as they are and you move on and you get, you, you, you sort of cut to the chase. The sort of, we always use that. I use the phrase meat and potatoes a lot about the way we go about this because it's sort of an honest grub approach to it. I mean, Philomena was, was set the bar pretty high. I mean, Oscar nomination, Right off the bat. Uh, first of all, what was that experience like for you? Because I imagine neither of you went into that movie expecting to end up at the Academy Awards. No, no, we didn't really. No, no, we just wanted to make a film that we'd like. We want to say a film that we'd like to watch. And, uh, you know, and something made us laugh. And uh, and uh, I suppose it, so we arrived at something which is a, a, a mode of working, which is humour and... You know, is uh, to have a sense of humour and, and um, make people think about stuff. And Philomena was a uh, was a tricky one. The thing about real stories, we've we've written something in between the two. So, him about true stories is Jess much more experienced than me at this because he does a lot of this stuff by himself. Is you get a box of bits and you've got to try and choose the bits of Lego that are going to make something recognisable. And that means as much about what you leave in the box as what you put on the thing you're building, you know. But it's kind of quite a nice, it, it, it's like a puzzle, isn't it, really? I mean, it's a sort of an enjoyable puzzle, you know, uh, to try and crack, you know. Mm. Totally. The thing about Philomena, which which now now I look back on it, yeah, it's seven or eight years ago now, when you look back on it, it was an amazing spot. Steve saw it, saw it, and I didn't, not, didn't read the book initially, saw, saw the article. And, and when I... We we were it was a we were having a, a phone call, and um, talking about it, and I I just thought, and this and we we preserved this right to the end, which was mother searching for long lost son, doesn't find him, doesn't have an emotional last moment with him, finds that he's dead, and then in death finds him again, and I just thought, okay, I haven't seen that, and it's a really really powerful and poignant way to tell the story. And then we did come under some pressure. Can't you bend it and, and maybe, you know, just have him have a moment with, because he died years before from AIDS. Can't you have a moment with her dying son? 
Uh, wouldn't that be better? And we, we let the story, we, we didn't alter the tent pegs. We, we, we worked with them and, work, and worked with what actually happened. When Steve's talking about the, the bits in the box, we, we didn't bring other bits in. We just stayed within the, 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 what actually happened. And, um, and it was, I remember going to a, for, for the Academy Awards that year, I did a, a, a writer's thing where they were in front of an audience and other people were on the platform talking about their projects. And it was just, we, was, we were, it was incredibly, what's the word, pain, painless, that whole experience. Because the guy next to me, well, they asked me, okay, well, you know, about two years ago, Steve and I started talking about this and then we did some work and then um, Stephen Frears came in and then Steve went to, spent the day with Judy Dench and she was in and then we got the money. And, and the guy next to me said, okay, so 12 years ago, my script was rejected. And I just thought, wow. <laughs> But um, it was the spot. It was Steve's spot. It was just something about that story that wasn't pat at all. You mentioned Stephen Frears there, and obviously he directed both this and and Philomena. Um, and I, I've I've interviewed Stephen in the past, and I've I've read lots of interviews with him where he talks about how he is a director who likes to basically just find a really great script that he won't necessarily spend lots of time developing it himself. No. He's a, he's almost no. like a plug and play director in a way. Obviously, one of the yeah. greats, but he can just get a script and, and make it. Is that your experience with with him both times, or is he does he get involved with the scripting stage? Yeah, I think, well, he, he, he only gets involved with the script as far as he reads something, because I don't understand that. Well, it's quite liberating in a way, because if we said, I don't know, I don't really understand this scene. What's it about? And we go, well, it's about this. And you go, well, I'm not getting that, so go and rewrite it. What should we do? <laughs> I don't know. You're a writer. You sort it out. That's what you would say, right? So in actual fact, what that meant was that it gave us autonomy. He wasn't like, you need to rewrite this, give me the pen, I'll rewrite it. There was never any of that. There's never any of that. He just goes, go and sort it out, make it clearer. And giving you the initiative is really respectful. It also means you can do less work, but it also but it does give you the the autonomy to to be master of your own scripts. And I, I think he's he uh, you know uh, is I put him in, in the sort of same zone as all the great uh, directors who are not auteurs. You know, George Roy Hill, uh, Sidney Pollack, Sidney Lumet, yeah, Andre Pakula. Um, Oh, oh, the old, the greatest one of all. Some like it hot. Um, Billy, 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 Billy Wilder. Wilder. Yeah. These people who are who just serve the material, whether it's a comedy or a drama or whatever, they just do their best job and don't get in the way of the, the scripts. And I think Stephen's one of those directors, and um, so it's great uh, working with him. And uh, you know, he he's um, yeah, he 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 he's a t- hard taskmaster. He doesn't do any development. He just says, "Don't quite don't understand what what's that about," you know. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's it, yeah. Well, at what point did you start thinking about this? Because obviously, this was a very famous story when it happened. It was headline news uh, around the world, and I imagine there were a lot of people who were interested in making a movie about the search for the the body of Richard the uh, Third. How did you pounce more quickly than anyone else? Did you have to talk to Philippa Langley to to get the rights to her story? How did it happen for the two of you? Yeah, there was a lot of interest, but. Steve again, with a with a, with a great eye, thought there's there's really something interesting here, and um, and so he declared an interest to Philippa, and then it it stood or fall both ways, her to us and us to her, on, on some key meetings where where it was about what we were asking her, and how 
how serious we were, um, how much we were going to properly excavate this as a story. And um, uh, from our point of view as well, we, we didn't want to, we, we were looking, Philomena, it, it, it's, it goes so far, then it becomes something else. And I think the same thing happened here. We, it's an incredible story how a housewife from Edinburgh finds the body of a 500-year-old lost king. It just sounds, sounds ridiculous. But then, then it becomes something else when she pulls that off. Then it became something else, which uh, got our hackles up, uh, which was all about having really most of the credit for that discovery, discovery, the search, taken from her. Uh, and then, then, then we couldn't wait to write this because that was a wrong. And it's, it's, it's taken 10 years. She's had 10 years of, of Leicester University downplaying her role in finding Richard III and, and finally, that balance is starting to be redressed. And it was really important to us. Yeah. Steve, I spoke to you a couple of weeks ago for, uh, from the Oast House, and you were talking about how you and Jeff had written something, and you've mentioned it again uh, today, uh, that you were hoping to, that you are hoping to direct. Is that what's next for the, the two of you as screenwriters? Uh, uh, yeah, yes. Um, there's, a, there's a film that Jeff and I wrote in between Philomena and, and uh, Richard the, and the Lost King, uh, which uh, called Foxglove which is something we're both very passionate about. And we're, uh, you know, we're looking for our leading lady. Um, and uh, and I, it's something I want to direct. I probably almost certainly won't be in it. Um, but I'd love to, um, yeah, I'd love, I'd love to have a bash. Uh, at I, think, uh, yeah. I think you'd be fantastic as a director. I really do. Mm. It, you know, it's something I feel like I've got. Uh, you know, it's a, an itch I haven't scratched. I've sort of done yeah. almost everything else, and uh, uh, yeah. So it's sort of um, I'm sort of chomping at the bit, really. Yeah, uh, I mean, you, you ticked off Coldplay the other week, didn't you? That's that's yeah. done. <laughs> <laughs> So then Coldplay just directing left, and then just real quick, I mean, I, I'm guessing is that the is that the you, you've mentioned a fictional screenplay, and would that be what Foxglove oh, that's, is? That's what I was referring to. Yeah, yeah. it's about a little yeah. boy and his yeah. dad. It's about a little boy and his dad. Yeah, amazing. Well, guys, uh, I wish you all the best with that, Stephen, Jeff. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Take care. Okay, so that was Steve Coogan and Jeff Pope, and that start got a lot of films to get through this week. Let's start with the Lost King, Hell's Bells. The Lost King. Did you did you find? How did you find the Lost King? I lifted my chip, and there it was. Yeah, exactly. I I, I just went into my emails, and there was the screener. Uh, uh, no, this was uh, this was a little bit less than I hoped for. I'll be honest, given the people involved. But uh, Sally Hawkins, who's unfailingly brilliant, uh, plays Philippa Langley, who uh, has. Is kind of struggling a little bit in life. She's uh, recently divorced. She's raising her two boys. She's uh, suffered from ME in the past and is worried that that's still holding her back at work because her boss isn't giving her opportunities because he thinks, you know, oh, what if she gets sick again? And she becomes um, a little bit obsessed with Richard III. Um, after seeing him, he's uh, seeing the, the, the Shakespeare play where he's played by an actor played by Harry Lloyd. She then starts having basically visions of Harry Lloyd as Richard III and and starts trying to essentially clear his name and and make the argument to people that Shakespeare did him wrong essentially was unfair to him was was sort of parroting Tudor propaganda which of course to an extent he absolutely was and um and in particular she becomes obsessed with finding his body so in this telling uh, she is 
the one who identifies the spots in the car park in Leicester uh, where his body was eventually found. You know, there had been other theories that it was basically there since I think the 70s or 80s. Why would they put it in the car park? Right. So the car park came along later, I'll be honest with you, Chris, because there weren't <laughs> cars when he died. Yeah, I, that's why I couldn't get my head around. Mm, not having just, cars. It, yeah, it didn't it's make sense to me. Difficult idea. Sure. Yeah, well, I would anyway. Cemetery, if I, if I were <laughs> them. A great and groundbreaking, literally groundbreaking idea, Chris. Thanks so much. Um, so yeah, so this is one of those kind of um, British low, you know, low budget, uh, small scale, uh, neither of which are criticisms, uh, films about you know a plucky outsider trying to sort of take on the establishment, get them to take her in this case seriously, um, get them to reconsider their own preconceived ideas of who Richard the Third was, and indeed who Philip Langley is as well. Uh, and in this telling, you know, she is very much sort of one woman against the odds, uh, moving mountains. I think that that uh, characterization has been rather disputed by some of the other real figures in the story. I'll be honest, I didn't love this. I, I thought it was a little bit um, plucky outsider British movie by numbers uh, at times, and, and it didn't grab me emotionally in the way that I hoped for. Maybe I'm too much of a Shakespeare girl, I don't know. But um, but it, it didn't particularly work for me. I, that said, you know, everyone gives good performances. Uh, Steve Coogan hasn't got a, a huge role in it, but it's a very likable and very nicely played role as her ex-husband, who is still, you know, they're not at odds. They're kind of quite supportive of each other. And it's quite a nice relationship to see that portrayed on screen. Um, but but yeah, I, I didn't have the best time with it. I find it a little bit plodding at times. Anyway, John disagreed. He gave it three stars. So that is our official verdict. Three. <laughs> Years from now, Helen's true opinion of the Lost King will be dug up from underneath a Leicester car park. And it'll just be a, simply a, a, an audio tape of Helen going... <laughs> that's what I'm getting. That's what I'm gleaning from that interview. I'm just reading, reading between the lines there, Helen. I don't think this is as good as Philomena. I mean, that's a no. fairly high bar. Mm-hmm. I love that Philomena's film. Philomena's great. But that said, I think I found this more compelling and uh, affecting than you. I think there are certain interesting parallels between this and Philomena, which, as you've probably heard in the interview with Steve Coogan and Jeff Pope, we discussed to an extent. Both are about women fighting against a system that is trying to uh, beat them back at every turn and trying to, you know, trying to ignore them at every turn. Uh, they're both about people who are obsessed with uncovering the truth and 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 digging into our history and what that tells us about today as well. But I would say I don't know. The story and the storyline of Philomena, I think, lends itself naturally to a much more emotional resolution, mm. and I it's don't, more personal. Yeah. yeah, and it's obviously something you know, loss and grief and all that sort of stuff is something that you know most of us can plug into in, in one way or another. And I don't know that this story is quite as universal. I've never got this obsessed with something to the point where I'm digging up a car park in Leicester, I mean, with permission. Yes, yes. To see whether there's anything there. But now I want to know what else is in all car parks in Leicester. Did they, was it like a a King Bingo type thing? You know, is it, you know, are there other kings buried under other Mm -hmm. car parks? I think Tutankhamun is in the Morrisons up there somewhere. He's got to be. He's Mm -hmm. got to be. We've got to start the search. We've got to start the search. Uh, But yeah, I I had a better time with this than Helen, although not as good a time as I did with Philomena. But we gave it three stars. Three stars down for the Lost King. And sticking with the theme of kings, it is time to talk about the woman king. And there's only one man who can review the woman king. (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) And that is James Tyre. 
This is, of course, a new film from Gina Prince-Bythewood, uh, and this tells the story of the, of the Agoji, who were an all-female unit of warriors, uh, and they, uh, they defended the kingdom of Dahomey in West Africa from, I think, the 17th to the 19th century or thereabouts, uh, and their leader is General Naniska, played by... 100% true, Viola Davis, as we've seen from the trailers. It's kind of like, it is kind of mind-boggling. And I know it seems slightly reductive, but you think of Viola Davis, you think of, like, the help, you think of fences, you think of these roles. And then you see her in this, and she's basically Jack Reacher. Like, it's, <laughs> it's a transformational performance. And it's the kind of thing where... If someone were to tell you Viola Davis is going to be an action lead, but not just an action lead, and I will kill you in the face type one woman army action lead and completely sell it, you would laugh. And yet that's where we are. And she does it. It's I wouldn't laugh. I wouldn't laugh. I'd be like, yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Yes, Thank you. 100%. Okay. <laughs> Whatever you say, Viola, please don't kill me. Uh, but she and this, she fights for her kingdom. She fights against the Oyo Empire, who were another uh, African kingdom who collaborated with the European slave trade. Uh, and we come into this story through the eyes of a new character called Nawi, played by Toussaint Mbedu. Uh, and she is offered by her foster father to the Agoji to be trained as a warrior. She's got lots of sass, lots of attitude. She goes in there and she has a kind of conflict interesting quite complex relationship with Naniska as this goes forward and it's actually quite a simple story it's this girl training to be a warrior it's this warrior nation fighting for their survival against another nation and the slavers the white slavers are in there so it deals with racism it deals with misogyny but the action in this is pretty fucking incredible uh lashana lynch is in this as a genuinely terrifying but awesome warrior called izogi uh you've got sheila tim who you've heard for as a menza and you've got this brilliant ensemble cast of these amazing women who are phenomenal in this and you know it's not i mean it's not reductive to say oh look it's a female and action film and yet it's really good you know this is an action film that is really good regardless of gender and i think so many of these films don't quite work in the way this does but you know the combat is visceral it's engaging you want to see this on the biggest screen possible like it's immersive it's loud the sound mix is incredible in places as well mm. uh, i was completely swept up by this i don't you know certainly from what i've heard and what i've read this kind of comes from the braveheart school of historical accuracy where it's not exactly, yes. you know. Uh, it, it, the Braveheart School of Historical Accuracy <laughs> is very much, you know, crayons uh, rather yeah. than print pens. The, print the legend. Print but the yeah, legend. Like this, I, I understand the, the, the desire to to print the legend in this case and to, to manipulate the history to tell a compelling story um, and a story that, you know, there, there is there is a lot of truth in there, as, as Prince Bythewood mm. put it. Um, there is a lot of truth. There's also you know some much more questionable decisions but um but it's a hell of a story as a result yeah. you know and and i i just love the relationships the complexity of the relationships between all these women because you have naniska who has her demons that she is fighting as well as being the most ferocious woman in in town and she has this great relationship with both Izogi and amenza so that they're both kind of like her can she have two right-hand women i feel like yes. she has two right-hand yes, women does. there's one who she confides in and there's one who is always there kind of carrying her orders. Now we has her own relationships with them all, you know. And then you've got uh, John Boyega as King Gezo, who is this. On one hand, he is a dandy and a bit of a fop, and you know he doesn't go and do the action. He isn't a warrior like them. So you might think, oh well, he isn't important. He doesn't matter. But he also has power and presence and authority, just a very very different kind. So I love the kind of the subtlety of that. You know, there were other films where they would have, you know, they would have said, oh, we have to have the guy fighting as well. You know, he has to show that he's as strong as they are, even if it's just in the practice yard or something. And they don't do that route at all. They're just like, no, he's the king. He's 
he's you know ceremonial. He sits there in his nice outfits and looks pretty. So I I just thought it was it was just brilliantly brilliantly told in that sense. I've heard for a long time this film slaps and smacks, and I was very very keen to watch it. But sadly, COVID has had other ideas. So I am glad to hear that it does indeed smack and slap. And Fiola Davis as Jack Reacher. That's great casting right there. <laughs> she has they've got, range, they've got, they've got a good Jack Reacher already, but uh, I like the idea of her facing off. Like, you know, this this might answer another one of those age-old questions. Could Fiola Davis beat a Reacher? Who knows? Possibly after this. Age-old questions. Age-old question. Four stars then for The Woman King. Uh, next up, BJ Novak was one of the guests on last week's show, and he is the writer, director, and star of the new... This is a strange one, Helen. How would you categorize mm. this movie? A, a, a comedy drama? Comedy drama, I guess. It is very vengeance. funny at times. Yes, it is. Yeah, vengeance. It is vengeance. Uh I I really love this. This this you know you told me it was good, and I still didn't expect to love it as much as I did. But mm. Bj Novak plays um, basically an awful media type, like all of us. Um, he lives in New York. He's probably a bit more successful than us because he writes for the New Yorker, and um, he's kind of casting about for his his next way to make a grand statement about the soul of America. Um, when he gets a call in the middle of the night from uh, Boyd Holbrook as it turns out, uh, not the actor, but the character he's playing, <laughs> to tell him, you know, through sobs and tears uh, that Abby has died. And honestly, it takes BJ Novick's character, Ben, a little while to figure out who, why, what's happening. And it turns out that basically a girl who he had had a casual fling with uh, has died and her family believes that he is her boyfriend and is, you know, super close to her and must come to the funeral. And he essentially kind of goes along to be polite to a degree and also because he senses maybe here there's a story, maybe here there's something that he can write about. And he ends up pitching a, an entire podcast centred around this quote-unquote dead white girl that can also say something grand and, and sweeping about the soul of America. So he basically inveigles his way into the middle of her family um, and uh, and tries to to tell this story uh, and and sort of there's a bit of culture clash comedy at work here as he finds himself in the middle of nowhere in Texas. There's a lot of kind of philosophizing about modern life and where we are as a people and, you know, what matters these days. Um, and and there's also a little bit of a drama about, you know, was she murdered? Was it just an overdose? Was it a tragic accident? What has actually happened here um, that kind of carries on through the whole film? I thought it was really clever. I think that that indefinability that you mentioned, Chris, is is one of its great strengths. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't follow an accepted playbook. It doesn't try to be something that it's not. It just tries to create these interesting characters and tell this story in the vast kind of, you know, beautiful upturned blue bowl of the the Texas heartland, um, but without being massively patronising uh, to to the locals, um, uh, because Ben is generally the one who is the butt of the jokes. And I think that works really, really well. I and as we it. discussed last week, if you if you listen to the interview with BJ Novak, we, dis- we talked about the, the fact that it's called Vengeance and that it's not the movie you would expect with a title like that. Although, no. you know, certain, you know, it, there, <laughs> there is now and again, a little bit of violence breaks out, but it's it's mainly a meditation on the nature of vengeance. And what a movie like this would be, what a movie like a, like a Liam Neeson movie would be if instead of Liam Neeson, you had BJ Novak as a slightly yeah. hapless podcaster at its centre instead. 
The, the question of who would win in a fight between BJ Novak and General Naniska is not a question. Let's put it that way. <laughs> this is true. This is very, very true. Um, yes, BJ would have his head ripped off and he'd be beaten to death with it. Can you be beaten to death with your own head? I, I think that ship has sailed at that point, to be honest. Well, technically, you'd still be alive, right? You're still alive for a few minutes after you get your head I cut off. I don't think you are. It's like seconds. Like, if that. Hours, I'm saying. And also, who's reporting how long? <laughs> anyway. Maybe we should have our own YouTube channel where we, we test this shit. It means one of us is going to have to have our head cut off. But As your lawyer, I think this is a very bad idea. I'm willing for James to make that sacrifice. It's all I'm saying. For the podcast. What, guillotine me, and I'll, I'll very yes. quickly try and report. Like, James, can you yes. still see? Yep, 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 yep. yep. Oh, no, he's gone. You're going to have to learn, like, <laughs> eye-blinking eye Morse yeah. code, okay? So we can tell. Yeah. What would your final words be, Jimbo? I think it would probably be, on the pilot. <laughs> <laughs> Aimed at you. Four Stars Zen is our take on Vengeance. And next up we have Amsterdam, which is a film that is packed to the rafters, the Patrick rafters, with all kinds of big old movie stars. You have Christian Bale. You have Margot Robbie. You have John David Washington. You have Michael Shannon. You have Mike Myers. You have Taylor Swift, of all people. You have Rami Malek. You have Anya Taylor-Joy. You have Chris Rock. You have Matthias Schoenartz. You have Timothy Oliphant. You have Zoe Saldana. You have Robert De Niro. You have, I'm going through the IMDb page here, it's an absolute cracker. You have Ed Begley Jr. You have Colleen Camp. You have Brandon Davis as Angry Pedestrian. Anyway, basically what I'm saying is there's a, it's just an all-star cast marshaled by David O. Russell. This is meant to be a big player in the Oscar race. Hell's Bells, is it mm. going to be? What is it about? I don't know anything about this film. Again, I, I was unable to see it this week. I would say no, it isn't uh, going to be a big player in the Oscar race um, because I didn't think it was uh, even slightly good. So it's uh, the story of two old friends who fought together in World War One. They are played by Christian Bale and John David Washington. And they uh, have to team up to investigate the m death of their former commanding officer. They are hired to do so by Taylor Swift, who is that officer's daughter. Uh, what they find basically leads them on sort of a caper-esque sort of chase through the streets of New York um, and also into flashbacks to their time during the war where they met, uh, where they also met a nurse played by uh, Margot Robbie. And when the three of them then went to Amsterdam after the war and basically lived it up. Uh, and, and all that sort of comes together into to feed into a real life thing that actually happened in the 30s. So none of this stuff is really real, but the final sort of thing at the end of the film is pretty much what happened. Um, so I think it's meant to be a kind of a, a farce, kind of a whodunit sort of a thing. You know, they are these mm -hmm. two sort of hapless detectives. They are, so Christian Bale's character um, lost an eye and, and suffered some facial damage in the war and now works as a surgeon who helps other people deal with their loss of limbs or loss of every, anything. Um, pain medications, whatever else other veterans need. Um, John David Washington came back and qualified as a lawyer and now helps people that way. So the two of them have their specialities, but they're absolutely not detectives. And they uh, are kind of the, on this hapless quest to uh, deal with the fact that they have been framed for a murder and and also find out who the real murderer was. So they've got the police kind of after them, but also not that 
much after them, if that makes sense. The police are kind of like, okay, do your thing. We'll arrest you tomorrow on a couple of occasions. It's just, it's weird. I don't know what the tone is meant to be, but I think it's all wrong. Like, I think it's meant to be kind of frothy and silly and funny and and light and quite quick. But nobody told certain members of the cast that, and they're still acting like they're in a sort of prestige drama and they're being too slow and they're being too leaden with the whole thing. And, And it just feels like at least half the cast were miscast for what's on screen. But I don't know if what's on screen was what's intended because it just feels tonally all over the place. It looks extremely handsome. The costumes are really interesting. Um, It's not just hitting the usual 1930s, you know, greatest hits. It it is actually, it has its own identity. It looks very original, but it just doesn't, it didn't work for me. I was just baffled by it a lot of the time and not in a, oh, the mystery has me really guessing. It's more like, why are they, what is happening here and why is it happening? So I I find it really, really frustrating because this many good people should not make a film this bad. I'm sorry. It's just, I I can't even this week. I can't even. Years from now, Helen's true opinion about (laughs) Amsterdam will be dug out from a car park in Amsterdam and it'll be... yeah You know, like everybody's doing well in it, but there's just no overall control of what they're doing. I just, oh, I'm I'm really frustrated by it. All right. You hide Uh, it well. It's good. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Two stars is uh, also our official Empire Verdict. So our reviewer clearly agreed with Helen on that one. So two stars then for Amsterdam. And then just real quick, real quick, because it's not a real film. (laughs) It's not a real film. (laughs) It's true. It's not a film. It's a one-off TV hour-long event. It is Werewolf by Night, which is not a movie, not a TV show. So we tossed a coin and we discussed discuss it on here. And this is the... I guess the oddest thing that the MCU has done yet, which Without considering how weird She-Hulk is getting, is <laughs> saying something. And this is a one-off TV movie event in the run-up to Halloween Directed by Michael Cicchino. Yeah. Yes, that Michael Cicchino, the composer who may well be the best in the business right now. Other composers are available, obviously. And this is a story about a character called Jack Russell. I'm not making that up. Played by Gael Garcia Bernal, who is a man by day and a werewolf by night. And things happen. I I didn't know too much about this going into this, Helen. So the plot took me by surprise because it's not an origin story. It's uh, something else. Something else. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, this is uh, a black and white kind of, you know, homage to classic Universal monsters or that one episode of Supernatural that was in black and white. And it is the story of a legendary monster hunter who has died and his powerful weapon, the Bloodstone, is up for grabs. So all of his kind of peers in the monster hunting community gather at his funeral to pay their respects and also compete for the right to win the Bloodstone. Um, to do that, they'll have to survive uh, an entire night in his backyard labyrinth uh, with each other and a monster. Oh, what could happen? Uh, Yes, so it's clear from pretty much the get-go that Jack has his own agenda of some sort. We're not quite sure what it is. There's also the the dead man's daughter, Elsa, who's played by Laura Donnelly, 
uh, a local to us, Chris, uh, yes. Northern Irish actress, uh, mm-hmm. and um, she is out Lives to kind of reclaim her inheritance that her father has basically threatened to give away to one of these awful hunters um, instead. Uh, but the the you know the trick will be uh, basically making it through the night and doing the right thing because it will not surprise you to know that this is the kind of film where they have a lot of sympathy for the monster rather than the monster hunter. Mm-hmm. So I thought it was it was really cool looking. It looks amazing. I think you know uh, Gallagher Thurbanal is super cool and looks uh, well. He looks good in in human form. That the the monster transformation is deliberately a little bit. Low key, I think, and and sort of old low school. Key. Not I didn't low think he was key. in this. No, well, oh, I I mean, see. that would be interesting. He could have been. He could have just been in a different form. Uh, but no, it's it's deliberately, I think, a bit old school and a bit sort of you know man in suit. But uh, but there's a lot of fun bits in this. It just felt too slight to really take off. So it didn't, slight. Yeah, it didn't so feel slight. like there was enough substance there, and 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 I wasn't left hungry for more from these characters because I just didn't feel like they had had enough time to make me hungry for more. If they turn up in future, I'll be like, oh, cool, it's those guys. But I won't be like, when will we see them next? I must know. Marvel, tell me, you know. So, um, but yeah, I, I had I had a really good time watching it because I didn't quite know what it was or what to expect, and and it's always good to go into a Marvel property feeling that way. I, I had none of this good time that you speak of, but I will say that I think it was a big swing for Marvel, and I, I quite like the fact that they're being experimental at the moment and going through their kind of crazy, wacky shit phase. Uh, and this certainly qualifies as this weird little one-off Halloween event thing, which we came very close to reviewing on Pilot, but obviously decided to do here instead. Um, Laura Donnelly's lots of fun in it. I think, you know, I enjoy her. She was the best thing in, in The Nevers. But uh, I yeah, I just there's nothing to this. It feels at once too long and too short, which is a weird feat to pull off, but they manage it, where it's too long to be a kind of tight TV episode, but too short to be a film. It doesn't really do anything. It doesn't further anything. I'm not the characters don't feel particularly gripping the story. I mean, I get it. It's like a it's like a throwback nostalgia piece for these kind of 30s and 40s monster movies. But it just looks a bit schlocky and a bit dull. And I just yeah, I, I wasn't loving it. It's it's you know, it's beautifully shot. It's nice. Mm. You know, love a bit of love a bit of soft focus, but no. I wonder if it will make more sense once we see what Marvel are doing with Blade. You God, know, I if, hope if that, if like that, this. No, but you know, if if the world of monsters, kind of Gods, that kind of mythological side, yes, thank you, of Marvel, like, will make this, will help this make more sense. Um, Maybe. There's a, I mean, there is an appearance from a Marvel creature in this, which is quite fun for people who are familiar with that character. I won't say who it is, but uh, you, I mean, you'll find out once it appears. But, uh, you know, so that was quite fun. I did enjoy that. But uh, beyond that, this was not good. Sorry. I'm a bit like Helen in this one. In fact, I think there were there were there were fun elements. There were things I I really enjoyed. I I the setup was interesting to me. So it's it's kind of it's almost this weird amalgamation of the most dangerous game and the Beast Must Die, which is a a, a, a horror film from the the 70s, where a group of people are assembled on an island and told one of them is Peter Cushing. So you can pretty much guess it's not him. But <laughs> they're told that uh, one of them is a werewolf. And, you know, it's kind of like trying to figure out who the werewolf is. And in fact, that movie in its original theatrical form had a, a werewolf break where the, the film stopped and asked the audience to guess who it was before the <laughs> werewolf was revealed. Uh, I've never seen that version. At least I don't think I've seen that version. Anyway, uh, this has a little bit of elements of that. But I, I, I felt it was just a bit slow to get moving. 
And because it's not an origin story, you're with Jack Russell, who's never named fully, I don't think, so you don't get the gag of his name. Um, But you're with him, but you're not really with him. So you're not entirely sure about what he's doing and, you know, and whatnot. But, you know, yeah, I think it would give us one three stars, Helen. Is that right? I did, yeah. Yeah, three stars. Three stars there for Werewolf by Night. It takes an hour. Check it out and see what you think. And if you want to see this character or characters again. All right, time now for our last pair of guests. We very nearly had Christian Bale on earlier this year for Thor Love and Thunder, only to not quite get it over the line on a couple of occasions. But this time we managed it when he was in town recently to talk about Amsterdam, which reteams him, as you heard, with David O. Russell, the director with whom he worked to Oscar-winning effect on 2010's The Fighter, and then to Oscar-nominated effect on American Hustle. That time that was for Best Actor. The fighter got him the Best Supporting Actor Oscar, of course. Uh, we sent Alex Godfrey along to talk to the pair about their long working relationship and history together. Thanks for being here. Welcome to the Empire Thank podcast. You. Um, Empire? Empire Magazine. Oh, right. Oh, yes. Yeah. 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 Um, this, I saw this film the other night. And it's still running around in my head. There is so much to absorb. I immediately clued into the vibe of the film it's uh, not like anything else i've seen before i'm trying still to put my finger on why that is i think it's because there are no obvious archetypes in it character wise there are no stereotypical people there are no obvious tropes you don't know where the plot's going or what the film's doing it's got a lot to say it wow. makes you feel uh, all sorts of things all the time and yeah. It's not like anything I've ever seen. Um, just wow. To- I just want to say thank you for that. That's, that's uh, what a compliment. That's, that's a compliment appreciated. That's well, a compliment. I'll, I'll, so I'll get back uh, to Unless that. you're about to say yeah. not like having anything I've that, ever seen. Having I never said want that. to see anything like that again. <laughs> having but, said that. Uh, that yeah, make the line. So just to clue people in, I mean, it, it's, to be, it's quite a hard film to succinctly sum up or to sell, but I will right. say to people at the core of it, it's about these three people who meet at the end of the First World War, they form a really tight bond under unusual circumstances. It's about broken people and broken-hearted people and broken-minded people, but there is a positivity and a hopefulness through the whole thing. Does that sound about right? Absolutely, yeah, and a a need to fight for that. These guys are real scrappers, you know, and and I think that you're quite right. You say they're broken. But, you know, he's somebody that other people would look at and say he's been broken. But I think he looks and goes, hey, I've been fixed because he's had a whole new viewpoint on life and and now has this exhilaration um, uh, and optimism and um, and fire in his belly. And these are people that Dave and I looked at and said, we want to create friends that we want to be friends with, people who inspire us. And, And the theme of how do you deal with terrible people? Mm. who run the world out of complete self-interest and selfishness. How do you do that? How do you not just quit and say, forget it, I'm not even going to get out of bed? And these wonderful characters who are fighters and defiantly optimistic um, and, and, uh, and, and helping others, um, but they ain't no saints, you know, either. Um, uh, uh, they're, 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 they're good mm. uh, scrappers. And they're people that I just I want to hang out with. I loved playing Bert no end. I miss playing him. Very, 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 very much. There's no other character I can quite compare him to. Um, oh, that's great to hear, isn't it? Well, that was our, I mean, we, nice. want to, we want to create original characters. Yeah. And that's been our intention in every picture we've made. Mm. He's, he's an extraordinary man. I remember you first came to me, there was, a, there was that art dealer. 
Yes. Remember that? It was years and years back. It was right around American Hustle time with a slight injury, and then there was, ah, that was always a little echo right. in there that you had. Although um, apparently you sort of stole your hairstyle from Chivo. Chivo, yeah, yeah, yeah. We had, we, you know, we were about to get started on filming. Um, then, like everybody else, we got shut down by the pandemic. But it was a very interesting experience because it's not often that you get to the point where you actually think you're going to film. Right? It's one thing to go, oh, yeah, we've got a month, and then we're going to start filming. If you actually, you're at screen test, you're testing out your hair, you're doing everything, and then you go, oh, we're about to get started within a week. Then you're really revved up. You know, you're actually ready for, oh, we're, we're really committing it. Mm-hmm. That was a wonderful place to be and then get stopped because you're in a different right. plane of, of readiness. And then we had about a year of, of, of getting ready, and, and you came up with gems in that time, you know, because David works beautifully right at the last minute. You know, he likes to come up with things at the last minute and they're always there. Like he's got a circular satellite, you know, uh, 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 brain, as I, as I say, where, you know, he'll focus on one thing, but you know, he's got all this coming back here as well. You know, that's why I love talking with the man. Um, uh, and then, and then there was just one day I was zooming with Chibo. For just for and, those who don't uh, know, Chivo, one of the world's greatest. Oh, Manuel Lebeski, who's made total this film artist, beautiful. absolutely incredible DP. Mm. Go to see this on a big screen. Yeah, this is what we're hoping. Please, cinema, theatrical releases. Mm-hmm. Don't wait for it to be on screen on, on, on streaming. Um, uh, uh, and Chivo's got the most wonderful, thick, curly, curly hair. And so I just I did a perm. You know, I knew I had a bit of time. Sent the text to David. He loved it. And went, yep, yeah, all right, we've got a new look for Bert. It went from Ezra Pound to Samuel Beckett to Chivo Emanuel Lebeski. <laughs> They're all hair cousins. What did, did did you tell him you were going to take his hair? No. no what did, it was, so what it, it was did, a nice surprise. Did he just, did he recognize it when he saw you with that? I'm not sure that he ever really said. I did tell him. Right. Like, hey, okay, you know, like that. But he's a wonderful presence. You know, he's a, I loved working with David and with Chiba. Chiba gets so invested in the story. He gets emotional when the scene is emotional. You know, he gets mad when he gets mad. You know, he's right there with the camera, you know, holding it up close. Oh, Cabron, you know, when he looks up and he's happy with it, when he's not happy, you know, all about it as well. Um, <laughs> what, what, what happens there? He'll take his headset off and leave. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you'll say, you don't understand, it's just the passion of an artist. You know, yeah. he has very, very high standards for himself and he has an incredibly mm. loyal team, you know, that, that is from his focus puller to his operator, uh, Scotty Sakamoto. Uh, Mate- As do you. Mate- he's, he's got a real loyal team. You've got a real loyal team of yes. repeat offenders as well. Yes, I do. Yeah. Have you, have you taken hairstyles from crew members in the past or is this a one-off? I don't think I've ever taken it directly from a crew member right. um, uh, before. No. Yeah, this would be the first. Well, he should be on it. It should I think be. So, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this process that you had together, meeting up, talking about the ideas that David was developing and I guess just building on that. Is that something that's happened on all of your collaborations or is it particular to this? No, David was generous enough to really bring me on this one earlier than ever before. You know, look, we obviously, we started on the fighter, Mm -hmm. went to American hustle um, and, uh, and gradually just got, you know, um, David invited me to be more a part of uh, production uh, on each one. This is the most and you always yeah. say we get 10 more days each movie. The yeah. Fighter was 30 days. Yeah. American Hustle was 42. This one was 50. Uh, I And this one is, we would consider an epic, an epic comedic. If, if on our next film they offer yeah. 70, we go, uh-uh-uh, 60, 60 please. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, can I ask, what was it that 
you two experienced together. American Hustle started in his backyard. In, so, so to, in the sense that we're sitting talking, I came over to his house. I said, there's this guy with a comb over. It's a real guy. Right. And this is, he was at the center of this thing. And I just knew it was going to be catnip to him. And um, he was very intrigued. And he, he then he begins his workshop process. That's a magical process of his own that uh, he starts creating what he creates and he meets with the real person. He comes up with things the guy says that I don't hear until we're on set. Mm. And so many of them are in the movie. But uh, so there was quite a lot of conversation about that picture, but not as much. This was the most by far. And with Margot as well. Margot said it's the most collaboration she's ever had. She was at least two or three years deep. I visited her on the set of Suicide Squad in Atlanta and uh, she got well saturated. She said it's the most saturated she's ever been in a character. Yeah. What was it that happened between you two on the fighter that put this whole ongoing collaboration into existence and, you know, got you increasingly involved every time? What, what did you go through that, that, you know, formed this relationship? Uh, for me, so, look, I mean, I, I love David's films um, um, ahead of that. Um, uh, I'd auditioned for him previously, not 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 gotten the role, right? But um, can you uh, say what? <laughs> no, but the right. right person gets the right role, <laughs> okay. um, and I wouldn't have been right um, for that one. But uh, uh, it, it's it's just a dawning realization, you know, when you're first working with somebody, you go, "I like this, I like this a lot," uh, you know. And I, and I would say that uh, uh, that David. Um, uh, that you leaned more confidently into how you love to make a film mm. um, uh, uh, with um, uh, 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 Amsterdam being the most extreme example of that, you know, of the confidence of recognizing, hey, how you love to work, um, how I know, Bob knows, um, how people come to know, you know, how he works and everyone loves it, you know. Once you, you, you got to jump in, you got to embrace it completely. And when you do, you realize the brilliance. Um, of doing it that way and why, you know, David O. Russell films are so David O. Russell films, you know, why they've got this great energy, this warmth, this life to them. I was going to ask about the energy. I was, I, was, um, I think a, a, a premiere screening the other night, Margot Robbie and Rami Malek were both saying they had no idea what, was, what they were going to be filming every day. Come to set, didn't know what was going to happen. But did they actually literally have scripts or not? Oh, they did. All right. So, so they, what they, they did know roughly, what, but they didn't know what David was going to throw their way. That's, yeah, that's what In terms mean. of lines here or there? Well, or no, just... well, not, yeah. In other words, you have a script, you have a shot list, you know what you're going to shoot. Um, yet we also may try other things. You may want to have choices. And yeah. that's where, you know, if actors are used to doing one thing, preparing one thing, that's a different way of working. We want to prepare one thing and say, now we're going to try some other things. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and that's where the, the newness happens, you know, and, and, uh, and you get great readings that way as well, you know, when, when you, when you avoid in that thing of sometimes, you know, you, yeah, sure. You want to learn your lines and everything, but sometimes you get too studied with it. So when David's just chucking you a line, that's absolutely fresh and you just, boom, you do it. Sometimes that's the best bloody reading that you're ever going to get mm-hmm. um, of that, you know, and, and also wonderful surprises as well. You know I mean? There's sometimes, right. It just sort of, you know, that there's some of the scenes in Amsterdam. It was like, oh, we found ourselves with 10 minutes because someone had to go get some clothes on. So, hey, let's just roll and do something. And you'd talk to me off camera and say, yeah, talk about this, say a bit of this, get, give this line, do that, you know. And some of it ends up being the most wonderful stuff in the film, you know, and that's what you're so good at. Well, you know the target you're hitting, you know, the, mm. the emotional intention of the Amsterdam period is to explore we had almost a novel like knowledge of the characters. So you're saying, well, here we have someone's going to change costume. Let's take a moment to have Bert 
talk about this or do this uh, that we know is in the novel that uh, may not be planned for the day. I wanted to ask about Mike Myers. There's just a never ending roll call of incredible actors. I don't, I wouldn't call them cameos in this film because, you know, everyone, everyone's part is great and full and rounded. Um, and everyone makes a huge impression. Mike Myers is really unique in this film because he, his character is quite broad, but at the same time, nuanced and real. And he looks quite absurd, but he plays it as if it's not. And I really, really got off on his performance in this film. Yeah. Um, I wanted to know how that came about and what both your experience was with him. Well, he has quite a um, knowledge about this era, doesn't he? You know, he, he's really actually uh, uh, quite an expert on all this era. He also um, has uh, English relatives. Right. His parents he, are he from Liverpool. And, yeah, um, his accent was incredible. incredible. Right, exactly. He's yeah. very meticulous. He loves Britannica. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and he's and his parents are from Liverpool and he's very proud of it. They were both in the RAF. And uh right. he's very into that. He and I became friends in New York over a period of about five years. And that's another ongoing conversation. And uh he knew exactly how he wanted his character to look. Right. I consider him a genius in many respects mm-hmm. um, as a, as a, as with the comedies he's created with uh, Austin Powers. And he's also great in Inglorious Bastards. Yeah. So with, for a shorter moment. So he knew exactly what he wanted his character to look like, how he wanted him to speak, where he would be from. And he got my whole bit that these guys are like, right. The, mm-hmm. the guys in Shakespeare who come in as sort of uh, big overseers explainers. Yeah. Um, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, uh, sometimes people who come in, but are very important to the story in terms of revealing Valerie's world in the larger world, who can also be a hell of a lot of fun. And they often have a hobby like bird watching that ha- they find metaphors for the world in, which I personally find fascinating. Um, Mike was a dream to work with. Um, I-, I was delighted to have him there. I think, I think everybody got a kick out of it. Yeah. I think him and Mike Shannon had a, had, a, had quite a time together. Mike Shannon, who's quite a forceful actor, yeah. would start speaking. Mike said, first said, my God, you're a very good actor and you're very tall. And, um, and I said, and he said, he said, no, no, you don't have to be at all intimidated by me. Um, so they had a great partnership. He just really, I love his, uh, I love his uh, Pins Haveret. Uh, series that he did since. Right. He did that. Yeah. After. Yeah. yeah, where he plays all the yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just wonderful to have the movie enter new worlds. And we felt that way like a band that was playing music. So you'd, you'd be playing with me, Margo, and, and Christian. We start with Christian, then we're with John David, then we're with Taylor. And then suddenly they're with these guys. And so it felt like new members joining the band and soloing with us um, and, and, and harmonizing, which I think was a little bit exciting of a thrill for everybody every day. Yeah. Like when Rami, you never, we never worked with Rami yeah. and, and Anya. And so Christian you know, turned around and said, wow. When we first did our first take with them, he said, oh, these guys are good. Well, and Rami had such a long uh, uh, monologue, really, didn't he, on his very first day? Yeah. And it was great. I, I was kind of sitting back, but was just kind of recovering, getting his eye. And so it was really just an opportunity just to observe Rami and see. And, you know, sometimes people arrive and when there's a slightly more traditional uh, school of filmmaking that they've been accustomed to, where you just got one thing that you're going for, that's it. When you've got it, you're moving on. Mm-hmm. And then with David, it's like, no, we get that, but then let's do other things. Let's create more, you know. And it gives incredible, wonderful choice in the uh, in the edit room, you know, as well. Yeah, where he um, spent a lot of time uh, uh, to do. That. He just invited me there too. Thank mm-hmm. you so much for that, mate. You're um, uh, but 
but to see sometimes you get actors who come in and their first day they're sort of like a deer caught in headlights <laughs> going, wait, what's happening here? And 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 then, you know, the, the ones you've worked with David before go chat with them and go, hey, look, here you go. This is the way it works. It's going to be great. And then they get on board and they love it. Rami, I was so impressed with because he had that monologue right from the get-go. And then you'd see, and you just kept rolling the camera, but you'd see him figuring out as you called a different line and him figuring it out and going, wait, um, yeah, okay. But very, very clear-headed. And it was hilarious to watch him and very impressive as well. Like I felt like he managed it on, on his toes as he was filming yeah. in the midst of a monologue. And I went to him afterwards. I went, I think that's like the quickest I've seen anybody adapt <laughs> to David's style <laughs> I've ever witnessed on camera during the take. Nice yeah. one, mate. Well done. <laughs> He's great. It's, it's impeccably cast and performed. Everyone's just a riot in it. And um, like I say, I can't stop thinking about it. Thank you so oh, much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Really All right. Thank you, man. Good luck with the film. Thanks. Thank you so great much. to thank meet you Jerry so Seinfeld. Oh, okay. <laughs> Hey, sure thing. Once you see it, you can't stop seeing it. But it, it, it. I can. Stop. Wait, 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 wait. Amsterdam or Jerry Seinfeld? Which one? Okay, yeah. <laughs> Take your pick. <laughs> Okay, so that was Christian Bale and David O'Russell. And on that note, that is it for this week's Empire Podcast. Join us next week for more film-related fun. We'll be joined by... Well, it's Halloween in a few weeks' time. And Halloween ends, begins next week. So it's time for some trauma, trauma with the queen of the final girls, Jamie Lee Curtis. Back to talk about her last outing, <laughs> asterisk, as Laurie Strode. And we'll also be joined by the Invisible Man. You won't be able to see him, but you will be able to hear Oliver Jackson Cohen, who is one of the stars of next week's Emily as well. What a cracking lineup. And speaking of cracking lineups, it's time for me to say goodbye to my two colleagues of such lethal cunning. Goodbye to James Dyer. Goodbye. And it is time to say goodbye to Helen O'Hara. Toodaloo. Goodbye, Helen O'Hara. Toodaloo. Toodaloo to you. And it's goodbye for me. I'm off to answer the ultimate question. Could a werewolf by night beat a Dracula? By day? By day, by night, by anything, really. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Bye. Bye.